You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and today is episode 152, and we have something really special for you today. It's a, a product of a little a little uh, springtime failure, but <laughs> it was actually something we wanted to do for a long time yes. based off of how our last uh, best of episodes were received. Really well received, and a lot of people had not been back far enough to listen to this. I actually just noticed... In prepping for this on Apple Podcasts that some of our – I guess they only show 150 episodes. Mm-hmm. So some of our episodes are starting to drop off the uh, back end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming they can't be listened to on Apple at this point. I don't know how we change uh, you're that. You're able to go back you? further. Okay. You have to like hit show more like six times, but it, it does work. No, but... there was no more show more. Oh, really? End, yeah. Oh, okay. So I got to see if it's I've a setting. i to, to like podcasts that had like 300 episodes, and I've listened from the beginning. Must be a um, setting. I'll yeah. have to go in and look when we're done. But, but I was shocked. I was like, oh, no, this isn't good. <laughs> but that being said, after we did our first uh, best of, I was like, hey, there's, we should do some more of our favorites as well. And uh, so we decided, since we don't have an actual guest. Uh, we did. It's a, it's a last-minute scheduling yeah. conflict. Yeah, um, yeah. some things things fell through and said, hey, well, now's a great opportunity to bring on Two of our favorite episodes, uh, at least my personal favorites, yes. I, I'm pretty sure Fran I, enjoyed yeah, them too. I agree. And I that agree. was episode 20, which was uh, Meet the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, uh, which that, is now the Southeastern Grasslands Institute. And that was with Dr. Dwayne Nestis, who I just got to see very, very briefly down in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, about a week ago. And he's I've, – I've been seeing him everywhere uh, mm-hmm. with uh, – he was on the Google uh, podcast, and I've been seeing little promos for the work he did with Google yep. and uh, – like I'm starting to see his name pop up everywhere I I look, and this was very, you know, you had seen him speak live, and oh, yeah. you were very moved by what he said, and it's hard not to be moved mm-hmm. when he talks. Everyone, there's a reason why he's called the Prairie Preacher. Yes, yeah, and and back when I saw him in uh, October, he and I were talking about getting him back on at some point. So this will be a little little teaser if you haven't heard this episode before. Uh, and even if you have, it's a, a good refresher for what we talked about. And uh, can't wait to sit down with him in the future to go over everything that's happened with SGI since we spoke to him a, f- a few years ago now. And then the second one we wanted to bring bring back was episode 40, um, which was one of the more fun guests I would say yeah, we've had. I, I agree. And that was uh, Meet the Forger's Harvest with Samuel Thayer, who is a, a master forger, basically. Uh, has and like an own forging business, and now again another name that I just keep seeing everywhere. Yeah, like he's starting to pop up. Yeah, everywhere. in fact, my wife was watching a, a TikTok the other day, and then she she does what many wives do and saves her favorite ones. Yeah. That's the ones she thinks I like, and um, and then shows me when we're right after dinner, and she's going through, and I just heard the voice before she even turned around. Oh, that's Sam Thayer, and she's like. <laughs> How do you know who this guy is? And I was like, we had him on the podcast, don't you? She's like, I thought he looked familiar because she did like a whole little write up over it. Yeah, uh, that we put out in an email. So, and he actually dives into some things that I don't know if you want to say it's controversial, but maybe harder to talk about. Yeah, uh, yeah, so it's like the political 
mm-hmm. uh, history of a disconnection with foraging. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was, you could tell he was unsure whether to bring it up. And then once he opened the door, he kicked the door open. Yeah. And, and we, we were we so just, glad he did <laughs> yes. because it's, a, it is a really important part of the conversation behind native plants and foraging and, and, um, really just how our, why our habitats look the way they do today and, and how hard it's going to be to bring them back. All the, the mental blocks we have yeah. because of how we were raised and our parents were raised and their parents were raised and uh, and some of the political reasons why we have as much lawn as we do and why we treat eating things in the wild uh, so much differently than eating things from your supermarket. And- uh, I, it was just a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Another person who I'd love to have back on. I was just on his website last week, and I know you purchased uh, some oil and mm-hmm. some food from him. There is maybe it's a time of the year, but there's nothing available. Yeah, like yeah. there is nothing that you can buy food wise. Yeah, <laughs> that's a point. yeah. I, I when when he does his harvest, probably in the fall, I think we'll have to start. I'll have to go and restock up because uh, the the hickory nut oil we got from him was awesome, just on a salad. And uh, like some some fruit, some hickory nut oil, uh, you didn't need to add walnuts because, yeah. like, basically the hickory nut oil gave yeah. you that flavor. We still did a lot of times, yeah. but um, no, it's just really, really good stuff. And then all the little like fruit leathers that he made, and uh, yeah. we actually finally got to have the wild rice that I got from him that that he'd harvested a couple months ago. And uh, it's just been sitting on a, a shelf in our pantry, and my wife isn't the biggest fan mm-hmm. of just rice in general. And then I was like, well, "I'm just, I gotta cook it. It's got, we gotta cook it yeah. already." And it was awesome. It was so oh, much wonderful. better than any rice we'd ever had before. And to know that that came from a a, a waterway in in Wisconsin uh, yeah. is is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. So we're we're really excited to to reintroduce you to these episodes. If you've heard them before or if you haven't heard them, I think you'll love them. Uh, we have our next three guests actually scheduled out. We're recording two two episodes next week mm-hmm. actually uh, to get a, get ahead a little bit. So we're excited about some of the, the episodes that we have coming forward, but just as excited to to let these, these two great ones come back to the surface a little bit. So uh, I hope you enjoy listening, and until then, keep it native. You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. For the life of me, I, I really just can't understand why Utah is throwing a shade. So welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezik, and I'm Fran, I'm not surprised that somehow you've made the entire state of Utah Something about yourself. It's, it's like, is it really something personal to you that you're, yeah. you're upset with Utah? You know, it's not. Um, you know, I don't think it's something personal, but I, I'm thinking maybe we could start some beef with them. Maybe start like <laughs> yeah. a, uh, you know, I want to get some listens here. That seems to be, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's bothering me. I, it's I thought, when you look at the map and you see there's one state that doesn't have any color to it. It it's, sticks it's, out. It's yeah. Utah. We're we're listening to in forty nine states. I thought maybe we could start like a like a hashtag like Get Native Utah yeah. or something yeah. just to like We've drum sent up some, some beef. native seed through Monarchs in the Rough. We actually sent some some seed there for a milkweed seed and and uh, pollinator mix. So there's someone planting native stuff in Utah. There, yeah. Oh, I'm sure there is. They're just not listening to us. It's 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 messing with my OCD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, friend. 
your OCD is just off the charts. <laughs> and this is really, it's making it hard to hard to live with you in, <laughs> in the office. You, you know, it's it's something that I I try to keep in check. You know, in the office, I don't try to keep it in check yeah, anymore. Yeah. Like I, I just let that flag fly. But it's it's starting to affect my personal life a little bit. It's uh, if Utah doesn't listen soon, I may be sleeping on the sofa. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> just just saying. So anyway, we should probably start talking about plants. Maybe that might help. Maybe it'll tune in. You still don't want to talk about Tiger King, or we could even talk about sourdough. <laughs> yeah, That's you, you know what? I would love we to still talk. Haven't done any of that. I would love to talk about Tiger King, but that would derail the whole episode. <laughs> We're just talking about Tiger King because I, I, you know, it's been a while since I watched it, and so it yeah. hasn't. We haven't talked about it. But I'm still. I could easily hop back into it and talk about oh, it yeah, for two I hours. Think a lot of us could. <laughs> but, but before we start talking about plants, I first want to talk about squirrels a little bit. Uh, oh, um, oh, that's interesting. A little Why bit so? different. And uh, have you ever heard the fact that when colonists first arrived to the United States, that a squirrel could travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi without having to touch the ground? I have heard that. Well, it's actually not true. Oh, and that's okay. one of the reasons why we had our guest on today. Why we wanted to have him on because he does a lot better job of explaining why it's not true than I do. Okay, so um, that's why we had to bring on the prairie preacher himself and uh, Doctor Dwayne Estes. Why don't you Why don't you introduce the whole squirrel dilemma and where that all started from and and why we have such an obsession with trees when it comes to to restoration. Yeah, well, hey, guys, um, let's talk about squirrels. I think that's a great starting point. Um, yeah, my name is Dwayne Estes. I'm the executive director of the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, and I'm based in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. And, um, you know, for much of my life, I'm 42 years old. I've been hearing about how the forests of North America were once so dense uh, that a squirrel could travel from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River without touching the ground. And... You know, we all kind of have heard that story in our own different ways, uh, sort of independently. And I'm not sure where you heard it, uh, Tom and Fran, but I heard it first time was in uh, sixth grade. I was taking a class called Tennessee History, and I had a teacher named Tommy Johns, who I remember telling that story. Now, it's surprisingly that I remember that story because the, the other thing I remember from that class is getting paddled 13 times for talking to <laughs> You know, we, you're a kindred spirit of mine. <laughs> yeah, but but somehow this this um, you know story of the squirrel just kind of filled my filled my head. And as a as a guy who grew up in sort of the proverbial hills and hollers of Tennessee, um, you know it was easy to kind of picture that because there were lots of big ancient trees around in the forest, and 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 I just had always grown up with the perspective that you know my ancestors and other ancestors uh, of other people had had done a great job, unfortunately, of clearing those forests. Um, but the more I got into my professional career, the more I learned that what we've been taught, most of us as Americans, is woefully inaccurate. And, and in fact, I would say that based on what we know now, that squirrel would not even have been able to really leave the Atlantic coast because of uh, there were so many vast and small grassland habitats that were scattered across the east. You, you know, you hear that story so much, you you just assume that it's true. And uh, and the first time I heard it was just in a, it was in a conversation about carrier pigeons and and how you know the loss of their tree habitat led to their extinction. And oh, and you know there used to be so much forest mm -hmm. that a squirrel could travel from here to here. And you just like oh yeah, that makes sense. That it, it must be true. 
Um, you know, and, and you've never heard anyone try to debunk it before. It's just it's said so matter of factly that I think everyone just assumes it is true. Yeah. So where did that as we've gotten into more into restoration, where did the focus get to be on trees? Like why are it seems like there's all these programs now. It's uh, oh, it's, I'm trying to think of one that's off the top of my head. A, a company that's doing it where, oh, you buy our product and we're going to plant a tree. We're going to plant five trees. Yeah. And where that, did that come from? You hear that a lot. And it's hard to say which company because it's a lot of companies <laughs> that do it. It's like, oh, yeah, right. for every, every dollar you spend, we'll plant one tree. You know, and, and it's always a focus of tree. And that seems to be the focus. But, um, you know, they always overlook grasslands and early successional forests. Um, so we're hoping you could explain to our listeners why that's important, like why why it shouldn't just be trees. Well, there's a couple of there's a couple of things, that, you know, in that that are that are hard to kind of know for sure. Number one is, you know, why we have such an obsession in this country over um, over forest and woodlands and and how that sort of came to be is, is not entirely clear. And I think that, you know, it's obviously um, forests and health, healthy forests and healthy woodlands are obviously something we should all be concerned about. And, um, and I love them very much in our organization, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, very much is a proponent of healthy forests and healthy woodlands. But all that aside, you know, somewhere along the way, this, this story of, you know, the, the entire East being covered with forests took took hold and i'm not sure exactly when that point is i think a lot of it might have to do with the fact that you know the experiences of of um some of the first settlers and explorers coming into the northeast versus say the mid-atlantic versus the southeast were were probably quite different experiences but a lot of what got written early on in american history in terms of a lot of uh books a lot of conservation leaders a lot of schools of thought really began to emerge more out of the Northeast. You know, you think mm-hmm. about, um, or out of the North, you think about Aldo Leopold, for example, and, and so many others who were writing and, and Thoreau, right? Yeah. A lot of those guys were writing from a nor- Northern and Northeastern perspective about, um, about what the country was like. And some of that I think got over extrapolated to include parts of the Midwest or the Southeast. And, you know, some of that could have been also brought over from um, previous thinking that was going on back in the back in, in the old world, back mm-hmm. in England. You know, I've heard uh, similar tales that have been written about how England, the island of, of um, uh, England and, and Scotland were once covered in forests from one coast to the next. And, and I think there's some challenge to that these days. Similar Similar kinds of squirrel stories have I've seen have come out of Russia, that parts mm-hmm. of Russia were once covered in vast forests. So something we're trying to chase down that squirrel and figure out where <laughs> it originally you started. Know, I, I think part of that could really be perception. You know, you talk about the loss of of American chestnuts, and it's easy to to Google and find a, a photo of of large chestnuts, uh, chestnut trees in the Northeast with people standing next to it. And, and you see the size and I think people are quick to assume, Oh, that's what it must've looked like. It must've mm-hmm. just been a, a ton of chestnuts and, and they died off or, or we cut them down. And it's, that's, I think they forget that's just a snapshot. That's just an, an, 
you know, an area. Because you, you have to think that the, the Native Americans had open area to, to live mm -hmm. and, and – you know, it's if 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 it was all forested, you wouldn't have any of those early successional wildlife or mm -hmm. birds. Yeah, let, let me tell you a quick story that I found in some of the historical research that I've done. That I think is sort of a testament to the way people were thinking in about the time around eighteen hundred. Okay, so um, French botanist Francois Michaud came over. His father had previously come over uh, to America in the seventeen nineties. And uh, it was kind of customary back then for people to start their journey into America um, somewhere on the East Coast. So they would usually start in Philadelphia or okay. sometimes Baltimore, and they would go on these big journeys into the American interior. And so in the case of, uh, of Francois Michaud, he started out in, I believe, in Philadelphia, headed west on the old stagecoach, uh, probably out into around Pittsburgh and eventually hopped on the Ohio River. And a lot of people in those days would sort of take that, take that journey. Other times they would go from Philadelphia down through Baltimore and eventually make their way down into Tennessee in, into the heart of sort of the, the wilderness of what was then called the Southwest. But on this particular journey, Francois Michaud is coming down the Ohio River and he gets off at a place called Limestone, which is in, in Kentucky. Okay. And he travels overland to modern-day Lexington, Kentucky, and he's on his way to eventually go to Nashville. And now you got to keep in mind, this is uh, about 1802, so Nashville at this time has just got maybe a few dozen houses at best. Okay. It's only about 20 years old, in fact, as a wow. town. So he is on his way to Nashville, and he's crossing essentially the wilderness. And when he gets to Lexington, which is you know, a fairly well-to-do town even at that period in time, he gets warned by everybody. He says, listen, you're about to cross basically a virtual desert. There's no trees. There's no shade. There's no sun. I mean, there, it's all sun. There's no water. And you really better think about this before you cross this big, open, vast plain. So sure enough, he gets into this journey, and it is just sweltering. He's hot, and it's, he, he gets sort of depressed at this, at this scene of just walking across these endless grasslands. Finally, he gets all the way to what is now the modern-day Tennessee and Kentucky state line, and he says, within about five miles of reaching the Tennessee line, he said, I, I left what we called the Barrens. And the term Barrens was used to basically refer to, in that, in that case, a place where that was totally wide open and almost treeless. He said, I left the Barrens and entered the woodlands. Now, this is really important because he goes on to describe what the woodlands were. He said, the woodlands here in this five-mile-wide swath, um, they border the barrens, and they consist of an area with scattered mockernut hickory trees and blackjack oak trees and post oak trees where the canopies of those trees don't quite touch one another. And the grass of the barrens continues right on in underneath those woodlands. But then he goes on to say, after I crossed this five-mile-wide swath of woodlands, I got into Tennessee and entered the forest. And that's really important because the last thing he says, he says the American people, most of the American people who live in the cities back east have no idea that there's a place among them that is so vast and wide open and without trees. But what I think is really telling is, 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 the, is the three usages there of barren, woodland, and forest. And what he's using there is the term of woodland. He talks about almost as if it was the common condition back east. Mm -hmm. 
And what what's important about that is that then suggests that places like Southeast Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, where he was coming from, that that open, sparsely treed landscape with grasses underneath might have been the most common condition that people were familiar with. So it was kind of unremarkable. Yeah, you know, you know I, I think the average person, when you mention grasslands, I think they immediately think the Midwest. Um, you know, and it's it's easy to remember, like the Northeast, you, you get forests only because you have the moisture to have forests. It's mm-hmm. it's conducive, but once you get further south, you know, it's 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 a little bit hotter. It's a little bit longer summers. Like I could see where maybe it's not a, you know, if you logically think about it, you could say, oh, maybe that's really not conducive to mm-hmm. like like a heavy forest, and it makes sense. But I, I, I'm assuming that most of the cities in the southeast were really grasslands before colonization or that uh, not really like heavy forests, like one would think. Well, and that's that's an important thing to define, I guess, off the bat is, you know, what we mean by the term grasslands. So um, kind of the new working definition for grasslands, you know, everybody thinks about the Great Plains as an open, treeless grassland landscape. But, but really, that term more recently has been uh, broadened to basically include almost any ecosystem where the bulk of the biomass or the gra- uh, is composed of grasses or sedges or wildflowers. And um, so you can go into places like, you know, eastern North Carolina where they've got pine savannas, and you can look around and there may be, you know, half the landscape may be covered in trees, but the ground floor is like a prairie. Okay. And and up on the you know above that the trees basically are one or two species of trees, um, but the ground floor is very much prairie like. So that would be the case of what we would we like to call a, a treed grassland, which is a savanna. But really in the south these grasslands came in all shapes and sizes from things like coastal beach dune grasslands to true open prairies, uh, rocky glades uh, like Soldier's Delight just outside of Baltimore for example. Um, or those that actually had a good sort of scattering of open open trees above a grassland floor. So how, you know, going against what, what common perception is for, for those areas, how did the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative get started? How I, I guess we should go into a little bit of a history of your organization. Yeah, so um, we did def- definitely did not set out to – as two guys who co-founded it, myself and, and my co-founder is Theo Whistle, who's okay. based in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, we definitely did not set out to create a new organization. Um, he has a full-time job as a state botanist for the state of Arkansas. And I had a full-time job and still do as a professor of, of botany at Austin Peay State University in Tennessee. Um, but really, it kind of began, we as good friends, mutually were um, aware of and concerned about how we were seeing a loss of grassland habitat, like really high quality prairie remnants and savanna remnants were disappearing at an alarming rate. And so much of our research was kind of focused on that in trying to address that. Okay. Going into about 2014 and 2015, my life kind of took a turn in I suffered just some some personal setbacks. I I had a a son that was born with a heart defect, required heart surgery, and I had some some job setbacks. Um, It was a long winter. I was kind of suffering from sort of seasonal depression. And, you know, 
in that moment, I realized that I, I was kind of suffering from a lack of connectivity with nature. And I was talking to my friend about it, and, and he was kind of going through similar things. And in my own particular circumstance, I sat there in my in my kitchen. I looked out in my backyard, and, and I said, you know, my, my house is basically sits within what used to be a, a former 3.5 million acre tallgrass prairie. But today, all the other houses in my neighborhood, they're all the same. All the landscape is the same. And, and one of the things is there's no more prairie left. And so in that moment of need where I needed to take my family out and really heal, and I needed to heal my own self and my own mind, I couldn't find a good place in the winter to go to. You know, you don't want to go into a forest in the wintertime sometimes <laughs> to, yeah. to get the kind of soothing that you need. So yeah. I, I talked to my family. I said, you know, there's a there's a prairie that's an, uh, it's a park. It's about 30 miles north of here. Why don't we go up there? So it was a cold early March day in 2015 and we drove up and, but it was, it was the kind of day in the winter when, you know, it's been a long winter and you're just longing for the return of spring. And my little go girl whose hair was just shining and golden among those prairie grasses as we walked out in that field, all of a sudden we realized it was a lot warmer than what we had imagined. Hmm. Okay. And those grasses were just basking in and soaking up the, the warmth of the sun. And it was such a healing feeling. And I thought to myself, for so many areas across the South that used to be grasslands like Charlotte, North Carolina, Montgomery, Alabama, um, you know, even places like Philadelphia had a substantial grassland component historically. Mm -hmm. For those areas, all we have left anymore really are either forests to go to, which are great, but they don't offer the same kind of conditions. Or we have like city parks with playgrounds and slides and swimming pools. We don't really have intact, high quality natural areas that are open landscapes anymore. And that was really the first instance where I said, we're going to have to do something about this. So I'll stop there because that's, that's not the whole answer as to how we created it. But that's really the, that was part of the impetus behind it. Yeah. You, you know, I just want to say that's so that that first of all, that's a fantastic story, and it's so relatable, um, especially in the times that we're in right now. And and I don't know if Tom, you and I have ever talked about this, but like even though we deal with with native plants in nature, most of my day is behind a desk and on the phone, and mm -hmm. and it's real easy. Even though the subject is is native in nature, you can become so disconnected with it that it it really like it, it becomes two different things almost and this podcast Absolutely. you know really rejuvenated my whole love for the whole thing just because mm -hmm. you're you know you're getting to share your passion about it with other professionals who are passionate about it and you get a deeper understanding and it opens up a whole new world and then all of a sudden you're going out and you're visiting these places you're you're becoming more active in it and um you know the last couple of months my fiance and I have been just going on hikes with some of the places and you know, and really what kind of what you just said, there's a, a trail that's right by our work. It's literally mm. like a couple miles. You can see it from here. And we had never walked it before, but you kind of start off winding through the forest and then you come out to open meadow. And it was it, like you stand there and you're like, I don't know that I've ever seen this before. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like you realize like that line as you come out, it, it just really hit me. Like we stopped for a minute <laughs> and was just like you don't realize how much you appreciate this until you see mm -hmm. that 
that line like that hey we're out of the forest look at this because you don't get that area anywhere where yeah. you're standing in the middle of a field almost as far as the eyes can see and there's no one else there and that's not something you see in the northeast mm-hmm. so thank you for sharing that that that's that 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 hit a spot with me <laughs> when you well yeah it. and let me tell you then how we kind of merged that i think you hit a lot of great things on the on the head there which is you just don't see that those open landscapes in some parts of the east anymore and so what, what Theo and I did, we, we then coupled those emotional, personal connections to the land that both of us had and the need to be in those open spaces with our families, which he had young kids, I had young kids. And then we coupled that together with our professional training as, as botanists to say, okay, let's, let's look at this now from a science perspective, what's going on. And so as we began to look at like the rare plants of the Southeast, we realized that the overwhelming majority were actually not tied to forested landscapes at all, but they're the, the rarest species in most cases per region are actually grassland species. So we looked mm-hmm. at, we looked at rare animals and we started doing some of that. And the same thing is that a large chunk of the rare terrestrial animals of any given region, they need open spaces. But as we began to reconcile that with what we were seeing with conservation actually on the ground, we kept seeing new forest preserves being established. You know, $100 million uh, spent on a you know, 10,000 acre new forest acquisition, um, a new coastal project, a new forest, a new coast, a new forest, a new wetland. And what we weren't seeing were investments by conservation funders in grassland projects. And so our, our first thing we said was, look, well, we've got to figure out a way to facilitate a conversation to get a bunch of, to figure out what's kind of the state of science with this. So the next thing we did was going into 2016, we decided to host a symposium. We called it the Mid-South Prairie Symposium. And it was uh, hosted back in Tennessee at my institution. And we had, this, this was a three-day event. And we had about 30 different speakers that came. We had field trips. It was a, a three-day event. And, guys, the very last person who registered for that event actually came from New York City. Okay. And um, he came down there. We may have had a chance to speak for, like, five minutes. And at the end of this event, where we had all this information that came out about the grasslands of the Mid-South region, he wrote to me, and he says, look, guys, I am blown away. He said, I'm with a private philanthropic foundation out of D.C. He said, our foundation invests in some big projects in in the savannas of Kenya. But coming to your conference and hearing about the, the, the perils of what our southeastern landscapes are facing makes us realize that we want to put some money towards figuring out how to how to solve this biodiversity crisis of the loss of grasslands in the east. He said, so what I'd like you guys to tell me is what role can private philanthropy play in your mission to restore southern grasslands? Guys, I, I had to go look the word philanthropy up right there. <laughs> I, I knew what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> so one thing led to another. We, we got back in touch with him. And, uh, you know, that was May of, that was June of 2016. And since then, their foundation has given us $800,000 to wow. try to solve this problem. And they haven't given it outright, but they've leveraged it through challenge grants, which mm-hmm. have helped us to bring other uh, national and uh, even some international leaders to come into partnership with us, which we're really excited about. And, and you're not that old of an organization. Mm-hmm. 
No, we just uh, we formally launched January 2018. So I mean, we're a little over two years old. Wow, wow, and you, and you've gotten some some really good partners in that time already. Like that's that's been that's wonderful. Actually, I I, I don't know too yeah. many too many organizations that could that could boast that. Yeah, and and Dwayne, this is a compliment to you, but I can understand why someone would be so eager to jump in with you because you listen to you you give a presentation and um and it's not just me who thinks but other people i know who've seen your presentations you're automatically captivated because you know so much of the history um of the areas that you're working in and you're talking it's so multifaceted you're talking about the diversity you're talking about what it used to be and really it paints an amazing picture and it's hard to not pay attention. I've been to a lot of lot of conferences and presentations, and there's some that are really hard to pay attention to. It's the opposite with yours, so I can understand why so many people have been eager to jump on. But I think another one of the things you guys have capitalized on is you get a lot of volunteer support with a lot of these projects. Um, I've seen just through your social media, you have people that are helping collect seed and, and clean seed and doing all this stuff. How... How did you get so many volunteers to jump in in such a quick amount of time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the um, I think people have been inspired by I think people have been inspired by the message that you know we're not just coming at this from a conservation angle or a biodiversity angle. That's very important to us. But as an organization, uh, equally important to us is the the cultural uh, connections that our grasslands have. And so what we like to tell is that we're telling an untold story of both American history and American conservation. And, and through that, we're, we're sort of bringing the natural history and cultural history together. And I think that helps us to draw from a much larger audience of interested people than we could otherwise. If I think if we were just coming at this from a native plants perspective uh, or native animals perspective or just a conservation angle, you know, we would not have had the success we've had, but we are just equally passionate about the study of American history and what old settlers and what former slaves and what Native American tribes have to say about these grassland landscapes and how important they are and how they figure prominently into their lives and their cultures. You know, so through that, then I think we, we come at this with a need to answer a lot of questions and a need to do a lot of things. And so we have a diverse set of offerings for people to get involved. So for example, some of our volunteers, um, maybe some retirees are really good at genealogical research. Hmm. They're really good at going to the local county archives or library and pouring through historical documents and microfilm. Those are just the kind of people we need as volunteers on our side, even though they may not have an interest in wildflowers. Hmm. They can help us by going back and pulling Revolutionary War era land grant surveys and helping mine that to find out what trees the first surveyors were using mm -hmm. to to map those properties. Then those data get used by some of the ecological ecologists on our team because those trees that they were recording in the 1680s or 1720s tell a story about what the land was like. And then likewise, we have people say, you know what, I don't really, I'm not really good at research. I just want to get, I just want to let my mind go while I'm working physically doing some hard labor. I want to remove privet. I want to, you know, treat mm -hmm. invasives. 
And, you know, then a lot of people like the social aspect. They come out and as we are collecting seeds and cleaning seeds, we get people from teenage kids to grandparents. And it's so neat to see people from all different walks of life, different ethnic groups, um, different age groups working together in sort of what we like to think of as like an outdoor sort of community center experience. Mm-hmm. And it is just when you leave those events, when I'm at the at those events, I just feel inspired and invigorated. And so I think for that reason, Tom, we, we have a lot of people who are just interested in helping. In fact, we need to build our capacity to do more because we're we're really just overwhelmed by the response that mm-hmm. we've had and so positive. I, I you have connectivity on so many levels that's you know it's one thing like you said if it were just native plants or conservation but you have so many people connecting on so many different levels it could even just be um you know a romanticism about oh in my childhood you know this a lot of people just tend to picture you know how it was in their lifetimes but maybe don't necessarily think what it meant to their their parents or their forefathers you know and it's just you have so many people connecting on a level, different levels and sharing that. Like, like I was saying earlier, this is one of the things I love about the podcast. Like I'm not a marine biologist, but connecting with all these other people and sharing their passion, you feel connected mm-hmm. uh, as part of that. And I love that that's, that's the message and what's bringing people together for this. Yeah. So moving on to, you guys are obviously the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. How did you figure out how big that map was going to be? Um, yeah, because we we've talked yeah. about the southeast, but it, it's yeah. stretching, you know, into the, the the lower northeast. Yeah, and and you mentioned like it really started out with just two of you, and now you're getting a lot of, uh, I don't think philanthropical is a word, but I think people understand. You're getting a lot of, of charitable donations. Um, you're getting a lot of volunteer efforts, and I guess what did that original map look like where you really wanted to focus and then how quickly did it, did it expand to even include places in Pennsylvania and in Delaware and our neck of the woods? Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, originally with a guy from Tennessee and a guy from Arkansas, you know, we were at first, even before, you know, if I go back to like when I was talking about my daughter playing out in that prairie and just getting that healing experience, for the, for the next year of my life, um, before we held that symposium that I mentioned, I worked really hard to just grow the local impact and, and local awareness. So I, you know, I went to the local Bridgestone America's uh, Tire Corporation and met with their group of um, employees who had like a volunteer program. And they had like a, a monthly speaker series. So I talked to them. I went to the friends group of my local state park. I talked to them. I talked to the garden club. I talked to anybody who would listen in that first year. But my intent was I didn't care about making a difference in, say, Ohio or in North Carolina at that point. I wanted to improve conditions in my own backyard. Right? I wanted it to be different for my kids. And such that in 10 years or whatever, really I made a pledge to them that I wanted to restore prairies that they could play in and that their kids friends could play in while they were still children that was that that was sort of the the impetus behind it so you know it started local for me and it started local for theo because he also was seeing the demise of grasslands around little rock but when we were when we were tasked with 
by the band foundation of quote dream big that's exactly what they told us they said we want you guys to dream big about this that's when we started applying this to a broader region and so we initially conceived of an area what we called the interior southeast and it was largely we our rationale was that there's a lot of focus already on the great plains that there's a good amount of focus on like the illinois and indiana prairies that the southeastern uh, lonely pine savanna lands of Florida and Georgia are pretty well covered by like organizations like the Longleaf Alliance. But we thought, okay, that area from like e- eastern Texas through Arkansas, North Alabama, southernmost Indiana and Illinois, Kentucky, over into like uh, Virginia and southern West Virginia is, is a region where that's the area where people especially think it was forested and where there's really not a lot of work going on currently with respect to grassland habitats. But then as we brought in other team members, like Dr. Reed Noss, who wrote the book, Forgotten Grasslands of the South, and we brought in Dr. Alan Weekly from University of North Carolina, they, they are big into the coastal area. So like Reed lives in Florida, Alan lives in North Carolina. They said, you can't call yourself the Southeastern Grasslands <laughs> if you don't take in the coastal plain. And, of course, Reed's, Reed's book makes a great case for why Florida is an epicenter for grassland diversity. Hmm. So we, we agreed, and, and we thought, okay, let's let the science dictate that. And so we, we justified the inclusion all the way to the coast, the Atlantic and the Gulf. But then um, three years goes by, and actually just in these past two to three weeks, we've been refining our northern and western boundary. And so what we've done is to – avoid scope creep and eventually just taking in everything because you can't do that and still have it be manageable. We put together a science advisory team to help us scrutinize our boundaries on the northern and western side to where we were making good sort of science-based justifications, decisions for, for why our boundaries are what they are. So ultimately then for the northernmost boundary, like in say New York, Pennsylvania, across through Missouri, we define that as the north, as basically the southern extent that the glaciers came down during the ice ages. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why that's important is because when you look at plant and animal species across the southeastern United States, many species which are decidedly kind of southern species, they get all the way up into Pennsylvania. They often get to Long Island and they get up to like southern, you know, to Cincinnati. So they get actually well into the northeast. So I think if you really looked at it, Southern Pennsylvania and parts of, say, central New Jersey are decidedly more southern with respect to their biodiversity than they are northern. Oh, yeah, without a and doubt. And so, so what we're doing basically is defining what we call the biogeographic southeast, and that's the reason why we include those lower parts of the northern, northern states. You know, I think it's pretty funny. A lot of people consider a Pinelands Nursery a tree grower, which we do grow trees, but— uh, our top three growers are all salt marsh species, and in in some years, that's a third of our business. Between mm-hmm. three, oh, yeah. you know, between smooth cord grass, salt meadow hay, and and spike grass, that's that's a third of our business. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, you know, and our our top five or six plants are probably all grasses. Yeah, yeah, yep. you know, you add in little blue stem and and Pennsylvania sedge and that type of thing, and that's that's the bulk of our business. <laughs> Which is kind of cr- you know, and and people don't think that I don't I don't think that's oh, their yeah. first thought yeah. when they're they're considering that. So that's it, it's it's nice to see that you've included those areas. Yeah, and in my mind, I'm 
we're not too well we're pinelands nursery um not too far from the new jersey pinelands um where my dad started the company he was living in the new jersey pine barrens that's where he got the name but um you go down there and it's yeah it's a lot of trees but uh, a friend of mine were hiking around a couple weeks ago and all of a sudden you come along uh a on wide open grassland it's a lot of broom sedge and, and little blue stem and those kind of things and a lot of wet meadows there is a lot of open habitat they don't see when you're just driving down route 72 going to the beach you see a lot of pine trees and you see some oak trees if you're even paying attention to the trees but uh but there's a lot of and there's a lot of those spaces like you were talking about earlier where it's almost like a, a woodland is how it's described where it's a tree here, a tree there, and a lot of those same grasses underneath. Yeah, it's um yeah a pretty unique ecosystem, and uh, sounds similar. It's a lot more similar to what you're finding down in the southern part of the country with uh, the big pine savanna. Yeah, and I think what you guys just hit on there is something that you know we're we're seeing. If you look across our entire focal region, which you know extends from the southern part of Long Island, New York. Uh, west all the way to Columbia, Missouri, and then south to Miami and about probably Brownsville, Texas. Mm-hmm. So it's a big, it's a big yeah. region, part of 24 states. If you look within that giant region, the grasslands that you had historically, basically today, they kind of come in three main uh, sort of modern, modern phases, right? So if you're driving across, um, you know, Delaware or North Carolina or Texas, or Kentucky, um, your three grasslands that you see today primarily fall into these groups. They are closed forests and woodlands. They are pastures and they are crop fields. And so what, and a lot of people say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we have lost so much of our grassland habitat that it basically today exists in in very much an unrecognizable state. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of our grasslands in the southern U.S. Um, are not grasslands anymore at all, but they, because of the lack of fire which they need to survive, and because of things like the removal of bison and elk, those grasslands, the things that kept them open, are no longer at play. And so many of the grasslands, like on, on really sandy and kind of rocky soils that had scattered trees, or what we call savanna grasslands, they they became very much choked with thickets and eventually developed into forest. And so if you drive major swaths of the southeast today, there are forested landscapes. The historical record is pretty clear that many of those areas were once open savannas. And sometimes it takes sort of a trained naturalist to be able to still pick out those remnants that remain in those areas. And, and so I would challenge a lot of people to do, you know, if you're on the Delmarva Peninsula, for example, of Maryland, Delaware, or um, if you go out in that region, you may see a lot of forests in particular regions that don't have any modern characteristics of grasslands, <laughs> except if you go through the power lines that have been cut through those forests, that's where the grasslands yeah, are. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's not just like weedy species, but that's where like the rare species that need open landscapes exist. And people would say, well, I thought that was just a power line. Why is that a grassland? And and so what we have to realize is that our landscape, especially in the mid-Atlantic, has been so impacted for so long that our grasslands that existed really began to disappear before our nation was even 
founded in mm-hmm. 1776. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's very feasible that grasslands of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, parts of Virginia were probably gone by the year 1750, in fact. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what we have left are basically just these little scraps that are that are holding on. And and and, and, and pr- I hope they can. Prior to that, there's not much documentation prior to that what that area was. Um, you know, pre-colonization, it's it's hard to go back more than a couple yeah. hundred years to say, oh, this is this is what it was. So it's there's no historical backdrop, or it's hard to come across it. How challenging is that for you in in, in your efforts with with the lack of that type of information? It's really challenging because. You know, a lot of what we know about vegetation management and conservation largely is built on the on the research that was done by ecologists and biologists during the 20th century, right? So famous ecologists like Lucy Brown, who worked out of Cincinnati and wrote about the extensive forests of the East, um, what, what oftentimes doesn't, has not... Uh, been passed down into our modern land management is the attention to the historical record, the non-science record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So getting into those, what did the first settlers say? What did the land survey say? You know, those kind of things. And, and unfortunately, because I think the way America grew as a nation, the, very, the first settlers and the first explorers were just trying to survive. And they oftentimes didn't have the time of day to sit down and write about what they were seeing. In fact, to sit down and write and take your attention off of your surroundings could be a death sentence, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and, and that's what makes me appreciate someone like uh, John Audubon. Yeah. Uh, more of the fact oh, that what he, doc- what he was able to document for us. Otherwise, that that would have been lost. Uh, right. You know, and, and, and he did it at a great time where he was able to capture so much. Um, but you do, and you do have those uh, periodic things that you got to know where to look and how to find them. And they're, they're tough. But like for the Maryland, uh, D.C. area, for example, and, and Northern Virginia, um, there's a, a lot of great maps that go back into the 1600s for that area because that was one of their first regions settled. And so you see a lot of cartographers are, are developing maps in the middle 1600s and late 1600s. But it's interesting to look at the, um, the, the change of those maps through the course of time. They get clearer and clearer and more definite and they get more kinds of act, you know, greater accuracy. But, but really when you look around 1680 is when you start to first see grasslands being mentioned uh, in that region of sort of the, uh, the Eastern Atlantic seaboard area. And there's a big area of grassland, like in Virginia, North Carolina called the grand Savannah uh, that, that becomes mapped in the 1680s there. And then you can look at like Thomas Jefferson's father, for example, was a surveyor, uh, Peter Jefferson. And he came out with a, with a great map of the Mid-Atlantic and Allegheny region in 1751. And, and it showed some, some grassland areas on there. Um, and, and one of my favorites is um, in a early history of the state of Virginia, it talks about how as, as the, um, New, new colonists were coming in and beginning to push off of the Atlantic coast. They were pushing into the area just west of D.C., like in the Shenandoah Valley. And he talks about even in the 1730s when they got into that valley, that it was a wide open prairie land with buffalo and elk. And in fact, if you look on some maps, they actually map that and call that the, the Grand Prairie of Northern mm-hmm. Virginia. 
and it stretched over into adjacent Frederick County, Maryland, and a little bit into that eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Who today would even think about that area as being once a, a former vast prairie? Yeah, and and I'm I'm sure it's probably undocumented to an extent that those areas are probably dangerous to navigate, and you're putting yourself in the open with no resources for shelter or <laughs> or or anything like that. I'm sure it was probably humans tended not to to occupy those areas just because you're you're leaving yourself wide out in the open. And, and the t- a lot of times because they they might have been uh, sparse with respect to trees. You know, people would often call them barrens, and there was this uh, assumption that those areas were not very fertile and that the trees didn't grow there for mm. a reason. Gotcha. And so they were often avoided by early settlers uh, specifically for that purpose. They were seen as sort of wastelands in many respects. Gotcha. Gotcha. Speaking of challenges, um, one of the things I noticed on your website that immediately my eye was drawn to it was – at the very top are the words 25 years will be too late and we've been talking about challenges what are some of the the current challenges uh facing grasslands in that in this area yeah that that slogan 25 years will be too late i I get asked about that frequently a lot of people want to know what that's about and my co-founder theo witzel and i were when we were kind of creating um the the original concept to deliver to the band foundation about dreaming big and creating SGI. I, I just was, we were sitting in this little ratty hotel room in Ironton, Missouri one night. And uh, I said, Hmm, we need something catchy. And I started thinking about things and I said, 25 years will be too late. He said, what the hell does that mean? I said, well, I'm just thinking about it. I said, when I was in high school in the early nineties, growing up about an hour South of Nashville, uh, Bob white quail were common. I said, I could walk through brushy fields and pastures and I could count on every time I went to the field, I could count on having my nerves rattled by a fact that a covey of Bob White would flush up out of the ground and scare me to death. And I said, it's been 25 years since I have seen a covey of quail burst up from underneath my feet walking through a brushy field. And I said, so imagine in 25 years what's happened in my life. You know, I'm 42. I just turned 42 in June. You guys are young like I am, although I, I think we're all kind of embracing middle age now. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm actually much older than you are. <laughs> well, you, you, sound, you sound young. Thank right? you. We all do. Young at heart. But, but you know, I've got, you know, you, you hit this point in life where you see your grandparents aging. You see mm-hmm. your, your own parents you know, are all of a sudden at an age, you can remember them, you know, you're at the age you remember them being 25, mm-hmm. 30 years ago. Yeah. And you think, holy shit, how did life just go by that fast? You have kids that are all of a sudden grown. And and when I thought about it that way from a personal side, how f- quickly that 25 years happened and what kind of loss, in, the, in this case, the one example of no longer seeing Bob White Quail, that was in that 25-year period. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, by the time my daughter is my age now, in another 25 years, what's, what is she going to not see and what, what else kind of destruction will we see? So that's really how the 25 years will be too late kind of came into being. But in terms of what you ask about, what are some of the most pressing um, issues that we see currently? I'm going to leave you. I'm going I'm to tell you about one that I think is a really dramatic uh, 
crisis that we are possibly looking at. Um, we currently, guys, all across the southeastern grasslands focal area have what we call buried treasure. Okay? Okay. This buried treasure, if you walk through most of the fire-suppressed forests that used to be savannas in places like Carolinas or East Texas or, or wherever, you may be walking through a forest, and overhead there's southern red oak and white oak, post oak, mockernut hickory, shortleaf pine, pitch pine. Those trees that are now completely shaded over are dropping needles and leaf litter, which is now most time coating the ground. And if you're lucky in those areas, or if, you, if you're a careful observer in those areas, look at the ground of one of those dry forests next time and see what you see. I promise you, you'll see the following. You're going to see some blueberries that are probably not especially fruitful. You're going to see some poison ivy and some green briar. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to see a few seedlings of um, red maple popping up in a light gap. You're going to see a lot of leaf litter and you're going to see nothing else. Um, but if you're really observant and careful, you should strive to see if you could find the basal leaf of a wild quinine or a single stem of goat's rue or maybe a slight clump of little blue stem. What you cannot see because it's underground is you can't see the seed bank mm -hmm. and you can't see the rootstocks that are still alive underground. So let me, let me stop there and go to another quick story of what we would like to see. And then I'll come back and pair these up again. All right. So in Tennessee, totally by accident is how we discovered this buried treasure. Um, there was a guy who worked for our state game agency called the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency named Clarence Coffey. Clarence is retired, and he's an avid um, uh, reader of, of early American history. And he, in, in his job as a biologist for the game agency, had been saying for many years, we are mismanaging much of East Tennessee's landscapes that are wildlife management areas. I mean, we're talking about like 100,000 acres of land is being managed for closed canopy dry forests. He said, I'm telling you, based on what I'm reading here from the 1830s, 1840s up to the Civil War, there's a lot of descriptions of savannas for this region. I think we're totally mis mis mismanaging this. And few would listen to Clarence. Well, in the late 80s and early 90s, they, their, their hand got forced to listen because all of a sudden they saw they were about to lose tens of thousands of dollars, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in potential lumber as a result of a uh, oncoming uh, pine beetle infestation. Mm -hmm. So the southern pine beetle was about to absolutely ravage about a thousand acres of old growth shortleaf pine forest on the Cumberland Plateau of Tennessee. So the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency uh, decided to go in and sort of preemptively go in and do a salvage timber operation because they were going to lose this pine anyway. They might as well go ahead and cut it out. Now, um, so they did that. And just before that, a couple of years early, around 1989 or 1990, uh, there was a bird in those pine, pine forests that basically took its last breath. And that's called the red cockaded woodpecker. 
Okay. And that species basically needs open pine savannas. What had happened, though, is that those historic savannas had closed in and become so dense and closed that that bird no longer was able to survive. And that was the second to last site known in Tennessee. So the bird disappears. They go on managing it as a closed forest. And then all of a sudden, now the pine beetle is going to open it up. It's going to cause them to do the salvage timber operation. So they go in, they open it up about a thousand acres. And guys, within a span of three or four years after doing some prescribed burning, the response was incredible. They saw plants that had not, never been seen there in wow. a half a century. And so now 20 years has gone by. And what we're looking at is a thousand acres of savanna. With, and so they had some plots that they had done. Before they did this, they went in, there were 30 species on average of plants on the ground. After opening it up, there were over 330. Wow. Wow. It was such a vigorous response that other agencies in the state actually accused our game agency of planting all this stuff. <laughs> you guys know how ludicrous that is. You can't buy that seed anywhere. Yeah. And so the, the lesson then is that that's a great and hopeful lesson. But now let's look back at what that forest went through. It had been a closed forest for 75 years. So what that means is all that stuff had been there underground the whole time. So the question we're going to ask, and I'll ask of your listeners, is we know now from examples in Tennessee and, and a couple other sites that the seed bank and or rootstock bank, probably a combination of both, can last for a half century. It can do pretty good in some cases if managed okay, okay up to three quarters of a century. Can it last 80 or 100 years? Mm -hmm. So I think we have this 25-year window where we're going to begin to lose our treasure map. And we will reach a point where this underground biodiversity that now awaits us over millions of acres across the eastern landscape that's suppressed under forest, if we don't act quickly to restore those open savannas from current closed forests, we're going to lose our buried treasure forever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because we, we're, we're seeing that strategy with other organizations. Yeah. Also, we had uh, a few episodes ago John Park from New Jersey Audubon with their quail initiative, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what they're, they're working with landowners just to try to get them to open their forests yeah. uh, and, and, and let some of that light in uh, mm -hmm. just to, to hit that seed bank and, and start to yeah, bring same that. Same thing with uh, Dr. Jay Kelly with uh, yeah. Deer and Native Plants Part 1. Yeah. He was kind of saying, oh, yeah, you don't need to buy any of this seed or you don't need to buy plants. Just cut down some trees, and that light is going to really open things up. Yeah, you could never afford yeah. to plant what you would get if you yeah. would just open the forest up a little bit. And it's it's interesting you just told that story, Dwayne, because last weekend I was down – I belonged to a hunting club down in the Pine Barrens, and we have a little clubhouse that we maintain, and it was my turn to go down and maintain some stuff. And um, went down, and I hiked around in the forest a little bit, and what I see was – like shortleaf pine and pitch pine and a couple different species of oak and the understory was blueberry that didn't have many fruit and some poison ivy and i ran into a lot of green briar which yeah. wasn't the most fun for where i was trying to go <laughs> it was always in my way and didn't really see anything else. like once you got under that blueberry layer there really wasn't anything else growing meanwhile we have a, a trap shooting range at this club that hadn't been mowed in a couple months because no one had been down there and what's growing there and in just probably two or three months without being mowed you have like waist high broom sedge and little blue stem and there's some other little species that are popping up and 
that's only three months. And then now you take three or four years. I could completely see how you'd get 300 species in a large oh. enough area in just a few years. It's it's one of it's the, there. One of the mo- more eye-opening uh, talks that I saw was a study in, in Pennsylvania, in kind of like central Pennsylvania, where they were going through and removing dams that had been there from uh, early settlers, mm-hmm. where they had moved um, – moved the the waterways to their fields there were no riparian buffers it was more for for farming that they had dammed up and they were going through and removing those dams and moving the waterways back to where their their original flow was and one of the things that they noticed right away were the diversity of plant species that came back that hadn't been seen in that area in such a like they're like mimulus and things that we didn't plant just the seed bank was there the seed was still good Mm -hmm. and it it came up immediately and immediately protected those waterways um man it's it's, that's a really great story there i'd love to know more about that if you don't mind i'd love if you can share any information about that that's a really cool cool story you you know what i should have it, it was a conference i went to probably about 10 years ago and I, I probably still have the paperwork from it. I'll go through and I'll, I'll try to get you that so uh, I can share that with you. I'll, I'll, I should be able to get that to you by tomorrow. I mean, it's cool. It's cause what you're describing is basically these time capsules, right? Yeah. If, if just, I mean, it's it's just um, it blows the mind to think about what is still under your feet. And you know, I think that it goes back to if we ask the reasons. Well, okay, why is it that way? It's we would argue it's that way because we've all, it's just like we started the conversation. We've all heard the myth of the squirrel. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've spoken about 10,000 people face to face in the two years, two and a half years that we developed SGI. And I usually poll all the audiences to see, okay, how many of you guys in here have heard the myth of the squirrel? And I'd say averaging in and out over those 10,000 people, easily 60% of, of my audiences have heard that story. Mm-hmm. Wow, And that means that, you know, probably about 60% of the American people, if not a greater, they view the eastern landscape as inherently a forested landscape. That's what it should be. And so that permeates everything we do in terms of how we prioritize conservation areas, how we manage conservation areas, how we fund them. You know, and I think that's the reason why today we're you know, a lot of corporations are putting money into planting trees. You know, I mentioned the Grand Prairie in northern uh, Virginia and adjacent Maryland and, and West Virginia. That's an area, for example, there's a couple of massive corporations that are pouring in millions of dollars into a tree planting project in that general region. And I've got to wonder, like, do those corporations realize that they're advocating planting trees in an area where meadowlarks are still struggling to maintain an existence in those cattle pastures where Bob White are still running the fence rows because the fence row with the the little brush Mm -hmm. that it's got is the nearest thing left to the savannas that used to cover that entire region. And yet we have corporations irresponsibly promoting the planting of massive tree plantings in areas that historically are grasslands and their biodiversity is still clinging to life and we're going to put the final nail in the coffin when we do that in some areas i mean we're seeing you know obviously we had new york city doing the million tree initiative in in uh pennsylvania right now they're doing a 10 million 10 million million trees in in five years i Mm -hmm. think it is it's it's a big undertaking uh tree wise so uh i don't know what parts of of 
Pennsylvania that's hitting or if it's all of Pennsylvania, but 10 million trees is a lot of trees. Yeah, yeah and I think as long as they're done smartly with the right mm-hmm. attention to, to species and in the right areas, you know, I applaud those efforts. But I just I think we do need to be conscientious of, you know, not not removing and not planting trees on where there's still high potential for restoration mm-hmm. or even modest modest potential. So what are what are some of SGI's priority? Like we, we're talking about some of the challenges. What are what are SGI's priorities and strategies moving forward? We've got four programmatic priorities um, and and what we call eight conservation strategies. So for our priorities, the sort of the things that guide us in our day to day work. Um, one is we want to really we realize that there was a void in thinking about southeastern grassland open landscapes. And that's really the central role that our organization wants to fill is to, it's not to necessarily step in to be the leader, but to give the grasslands a voice. And, and in that, our four priorities, one is to provide leadership. And so uh, we're trying to station various coordinators or ecologists on the ground in various places throughout our region. Okay. So we've got a new coordinator who works out of uh, our home base in Tennessee uh, we have another one in Nashville, Tennessee, another one in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, we've got a new coordinator that's developing in Athens, Georgia, as part of a partnership with the University of Georgia. And we're looking to establish these new coordinators soon in Arkansas. And, um, and we've got one uh, now in Chapel Hill as well. So these coordinators will basically help to inspire and provide teamwork and partnership on the ground because – what we don't want this to ever become is we don't want SGI to be a top-down approach. It's really got to be bottom-up. So we okay. want these coordinators to, to be stationed and based in these various communities where they work with volunteers and they inspire that local effort to do what they can on the grasslands of that particular region. So our hope is one day to have a coordinator be based in the Mid-Atlantic region mm-hmm. um, you know, to serve that Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania uh, area. Leadership for us also takes takes form in uh, being a leader with regards to the science behind southern grasslands. So we've assembled a, a team of really uh, leading scientists and conservationists uh, representing much of our region to uh, draft a white paper, which will be published uh, later this year or the beginning of next year, that kind of addresses the science needs of southern grassland communities. Okay. And... Um, and so that, that, I think, is really important uh, there. Our second priority is education and outreach. Um, we want to do things like produce documentary videos that tell the story. We want educational materials. And the education that comes with, you know, working with empowered volunteers on the ground. The last, the last two priorities that we have uh, are things we're still working to achieve. Uh, one is policy. We need to do more in D.C. and in the local state capitals to try to bring awareness to grassland landscapes and their needs. But the final thing, which uh, is we want to develop a granting program. We want to work with philanthropists and corporations to establish a grant program where we can give back to people on the ground. And so we're proud to, to announce that very soon we have the start of that grant program is getting established thanks to a uh, incoming federal grant which uh, will allow us to administer $116,000 toward um, uh, conserving 
prairies in Kentucky as a starting point. Oh, oh wow. Eventually, we want to expand that across our entire region. Oh, that's fantastic. That's incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, in the in the two years that you've been going, what what's some of the good work that you've been able to accomplish? Well, you know, the promise that I wanted to give to my kids was I want to create new prairies for them while they were still kids, right? Yeah. So my, my oldest daughter now just turned 14. My middle is about to be 12. My son's about to be six. And I'm happy to report that in, a, in that two-and-a-half to three-year period, that we since we started, we have now created over 100 acres of high-quality wow. prairie. Wow. And and I'm talking about using species mixes between 50 and 75 species for those mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, beyond that, we're working with several hundred additional acres of new prairie that's going on the ground between this year and next as part of the federal-funded program to work with private landowners in Kentucky and Tennessee. So, and that's in partnership with Quail Forever and American Bird Conservancy and, and many others. But that effort will put in on the ground at least 500 acres, but, but probably ultimately over 1,000 acres on the ground. Um, I think those are the things I'm most proud of. You should we've be. Discovered, yeah. We've discovered some new species along the way. We've got a lot of great volunteer work. But looking back and saying that, man, we, we did it. We have created these prairies. And after, you know, year three, now that some of them are going into year three, they're beautiful. And mm-hmm. we did it. And it's so invigorating because what we see now is that the public is doing what I always hoped they would do. One of them, for example, is in the middle of an urban area in, in my hometown of Clarksville, Tennessee. And it is it is now a public destination. People come and they run the trails through there. They come and do homeschool lessons there. Kids are taking field trips there. It is literally adding to and helping to change our community and giving them what we did not have back in the winter of 2015 when I was suffering from nature deficit disorder. That's a lot of great work in such a short amount of time. That's mm-hmm. like having a toddler performing Shakespeare. Maybe <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> even writing Shakespeare. Yeah, writing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that's 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 a lot in, in yeah. the infancy of that organization. I'm really looking forward to what else gets accomplished. So so Dwayne, you've started doing uh, something that I've always wanted to do. And that's and I've even told Fran I was gonna do it and I never did, but I've countless times I've been driving down the highway and I see uh, this well it was this spring I saw all these Bradford pears just growing along the side of the highway and it was driving me nuts and I'm like I should just get out and get on my phone and just start recording a video saying this is what we're talking about when we're talking about invasive plants and this is why you need to not do it and lo and behold you're actually doing that you're driving down the interstate and then you get out and start taking videos and <laughs> looking at the remnant. what what finally pushed you over the edge that you had to pull over the car after you're driving 70 some miles an hour down the road that you had to get out and, and, uh, I don't want to say go on a rant, but, but I guess start preaching. Well, you know, it was, it was hard, man, because I, I didn't know. It's like, I I wanted to do something. I wanted to use my voice, but at the same time, I didn't, I didn't have enough confidence initially to, to think about it. And I, and I, I really thought about doing it years ago, you know, in some form or fashion, but I think eventually I, I felt like, okay, I, I have a platform. We have a lot of people who are, that are interested in our work. I have a responsibility to get on here. And yes, I'm passionate, 
but I hope I never come across as being too preachy or, you know, too one-sided, but I have a responsibility to try to speak to these issues. And, you know, I, I don't know how to, I don't have a video crew. I don't have like a high dollar camera. It's just me and my smartphone. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? That's okay. We live in this now age where people are, you know, shooting selfies left and right. This is a, a form of, uh, communication that a lot of people especially younger generations now understand they and they they appreciate so i i said you know what i'm gonna just go for it and i'm gonna, I'm gonna roll with it and try it and you know sometimes I, I get a little bit too wild out there but um ultimately <laughs> you know it's mostly a good fun but i do try to raise awareness about some critical issues that i see and i've been really inspired recently this past year by seeing a lot of other people who are beginning to do that too. And I think it's really mm -hmm. cool. I, I enjoy watching other people do it as much as I enjoy doing it myself. Yeah. It's, I, I think all you need is a smartphone these days yeah. and you can reach hundreds and, yeah. hundreds and thousands right. of people. You just have to have something worth saying. I might have to start doing it too. Cause then it'll make my wife a lot happier. Cause then I'm not just doing it in the car as we're driving, <laughs> driving by. I'll actually have right. someone else who's, and she can just roll up the window and put, turn the music oh, up and not have to exactly. listen. That's what they do to me. I mean, you know, man, I'll, I'll do it on, like on the way to vacation. Like I'll stop, wait a minute, stop. <laughs> and now, you know, my family, um, they're all very supportive, but they, they get tired of my, my routine, my dog and pony show, uh, every once in a while. No, it's all, it's all good stuff. We, we all appreciate yeah. that. One other thing I actually saw through social media that you guys were doing is it was actually you and, um, our mutual friend, John Seymour for Roundstone Seed you got to go to a pretty pre prestigious uh, corporate headquarters and uh, pitch what SGI is doing. I guess, how do you open those doors? And then how do those conversations go when you, you get to sit down with them? Yeah, that's you're right. John's a great friend. And, uh, man, Roundstone has been so good to us. And I, I think one thing I should say before I forget about it is, you know, back when I told you I had that experience of that prairie up in Kentucky on that, mm -hmm. on that winter's day, the very first people I went to to talk to about my ideas to make a local change was I went to Randy Seymour, John's dad, yeah. okay. you know, the patriarch and founder of Roundstone Native Seed. And I, I went up and had lunch at Randy's house with him and sat there and for like two or three hours we visited. And he says, Dwayne, what is it you're trying to do that you want to do? And I explained to him, all that I told you guys, and I said, Randy, I just want to make a local change. I said, I want to, I want to create a prairie that kids can come to. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, Roundstone will give you everything you need to do a 15-acre high-diversity prairie. He said, we'll, we'll give you all the herbicide you need to prepare the site. We'll come down and plant it. We'll give you a seed mix of 50 to 60 species, all local genotype. And he said, that'll be our gift to you to get this started. Wow. And that was valued at like $35,000. Yeah. Wow. And so that's, you know, so I need to just acknowledge Roundstone off the bat for that. Um, because of Roundstone taking a chance on us and, and, and making that gift, that's what originally led to us being able to open doors with others. Because then I could go to Bridgestone Americas and say, hey, Bridgestone, um, we got this private company. The seed company is going to give us this gift. You know, we're about to host a symposium. Can you guys help us with that? And um, 
you know, and they said, yeah, we'll give you a few hundred dollars towards it. Well, by the time I did that over a three month period, I was able to leverage Roundstone's pledge to raise another $30,000 in about three months to put that symposium on. Um, But, you know, I think, uh, how do you, how do you get those people to the table? That's a great question. I, I think that to sum this up, we got really lucky guys by, by meeting Clark Mitchell of the band foundation who came down to our conference from New York city and him discovering us. I think that's really what it took. If Clark hadn't have been there, and, and we would not have been discovered. I still think we would be just crawling along. But because we had somebody who is amazingly well-connected, who was associated with the foundation, whose job is it is is to try to find good places to give money to, to support projects. Them taking a risk on us and giving us that start allow, and, and allowed us to then go to other places and say, we have Ben Foundation on our side will you come and join us? And that, that has just made all the difference in the world. So I think that also speaks to what our continual needs are, which is we are continually looking for ambassadors who can speak on behalf of SGI, on behalf of grassland conservation. And we're continually looking for connectors who can help us, you know, open doors um, to, to even greater support. It's not just about finding support, for SGI's team, it's about finding support for grasslands conservation. And so that's, that's, um, we've been real fortunate now to, you know, to, to team up with Google and, um, we've been real fortunate to, to team up with about probably six or seven of the major federal uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got brand new philanthropic support coming from private foundations out of Chattanooga, like the Lyndhurst foundation, the Riverview foundation, private donors in Little Rock, but also a lot of small scale donors guys are, are coming to our rescue. And, you know, every week goes by, people are sending us $5, $100, occasionally $1,000. And now I tell you, that makes all the difference in the mm-hmm. world, those small scale mm-hmm. donations. That, that all adds up. That all adds up. And that's, that's wonderful. I think, uh, you know, another public perception is that like something nature-based isn't something that corporate America would get behind. When yeah. we had Dr. Uh, Sala on from National Geographic, he was saying he thought it'd be easier to convince a room full of politicians uh, <laughs> yeah. to do conservation than it would be to convince corporate America to to conserve. So I thought, you know, after seeing the, the companies that that have gotten involved, I, I thought it was mm-hmm. wonderful. So I guess the the one of the last questions we want to hit on is. One of the reasons we started this was so our listeners could get involved either through volunteer time or, or donating. What can they do to help SGI? Thanks, guys. Yeah, I think the, the first thing to do is go to our website, which is www.segrasslands.org. And on our homepage, uh, they can do a couple things. One is um, I would encourage them to watch our 15-minute um, mini documentary that talks about what the issues are. And then the second thing is there's a link on there to join us where they can sign up to receive our newsletter or if they're interested in figuring out how they can volunteer, uh, they can, they can sign that up there. Uh, those are, I think the, the first steps and we really appreciate the time you guys have given us today to talk about grassland conservation. And I appreciate it very much guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you greatly. So we, we always kind of end on one last question. Um, 
which is you know just rounding it back to native plants what what is your favorite native plant you know that that actually evolves for me so i go from one year to the next of having a different favorite my favorite right now is a plant called the american chaff seed hmm. and uh schwalbia americana it's a federally endangered species and it is barely clinging to life in pine savannas across the south and and but i've recently heard that they actually discovered a new population of that up in either massachusetts or connecticut uh on the side of like an air air uh airport runway Hmm. and so that's a species that used to be up and down the atlantic seaboard and today you really got to go to some of the military bases uh like fort bragg north carolina and the Mm -hmm. pine savannas to find it but it used to be much more abundant up and down through like maryland and many other areas I think and it's a it's a testament to what once was. It's a testament to the past. Um, that's I think that's my favorite for twenty twenty. That's a great choice, and everyone's everyone's choice changes. We all yeah. <laughs> yeah. we could probably name a different one every episode. I'm wondering if if that's a plant that could be found here in uh, well, I'm, McGuire. I'm looking it up right Dick's now, liquor. and it shows that we have a population actually in our county. Wow, there's in the South Jersey. It was historically native, but it looks like it's a. Uh, there might be. There's some around here someplace. I, I wonder if it's I wouldn't still, doubt if it's still no. hanging out in there. Yeah, yeah. Probably still in the Pine Barren somewhere in, if there's in, a well-managed uh, site. Chatsworth. I'm glad, Chatsworth. I'm okay. glad you brought that Not up because yeah, I you. didn't even know that plan existed. We'll have to make a field trip. Yeah. We'll have to make a field trip. So we always, after after the last question, we kind of open the floor. Uh, we do a, a final thought. So we're going to open the floor back up to you. You can say anything you want. If there's anything you want to promote, anything you want to add, now's the time. Uh, floors are yours. I appreciate it, guys. I think the biggest thing is, is that, um, you know, we probably shot ourselves in the foot by, you know, naming our organization the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. But in a lot of ways, you know, we want folks that are at the, the edge of our ranges in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, and others to know that you are in our region and and, and while our title may not necessarily reflect the fact that, you know, not many people in the Pennsylvania, for example, would consider themselves to be Southeastern. We are fighting on behalf of the biodiversity that you guys hold dear in your states, mm-hmm. just as much as we are for the biodiversity of Alabama, Florida, and Arkansas. So please know that to your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, please uh, make sure you think about us when you think about conservation and networking if you know of potential connectors, uh, we may have a really exciting multi-year challenge grant coming up soon from the Band Foundation, for example. Um, that could be several hundred thousand dollars, where if we raise several hundred thousand, they'll give us several hundred thousand. So we're going to begin to need to um, explore and expand on new connections. Um, and so we really need to do a better job of growing into the Mid-Atlantic region not only from a connection standpoint, but with our volunteer base, with our partnership base. So I'd just like your listeners to think about that. And if they see any connecting points with work that we're doing mm-hmm. with the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, to please let us know. And uh, we would look forward to continue to build that relationship. Awesome. Thank you for all the great work you do. Friend, why don't you go next? Uh, you know, one thing, I actually have a final thought. didn't know that I, <laughs> I would. You know, just – Everyone, do your research. It, it's mm-hmm. real easy to, to assume something is is true or accurate. Um, you know, 
investigate. Don't just take uh, someone's word as like a squirrel can travel from from here to there as as fact. You know, do a little mm-hmm. research, and it's a, it's amazing what you come up with. Uh, and 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 you grow that way, and, and it's amazing just what what you pick up. Like it's sometimes yeah. I end up after one of these one of these shows I end up going down a rabbit hole with <laughs> <laughs> with you know and and that's what sparks the next episode and the episode after that so it's uh I I love when when someone comes on and sets us all straight yeah. uh yeah. and 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 the stories that you had were were fabulous uh the historical stories so mm-hmm. it's you know it definitely has opened my eyes and it makes me look at it a little bit differently and I hope it does for everyone else also all right Tom yeah. that's all you. So mine was really about the origin of this podcast, and it all kind of started because I was uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I was mowing my lawn last summer, and um, I was listening to a podcast called Land and Legacy, which is a hunting-focused podcast, but they really focus on some of the native plant stuff, and that was the episode I stumbled on first was with a fellow, Justin Adams, who works at Pure Air Native Seed, who's a, another nursery or seed producer that we work with out in Missouri. Um, listen to them. And then the next week it was Dr. Dwayne Estes, who I had actually just met a couple months earlier at a meeting in Kentucky. So I was like, Oh, can't wait to listen to this one. And, um, as I was listening, I'm like, man, we could do this. We know a lot of, we work with so many organizations that are doing maybe not the same work, but similar work. We, and Fran already had an existing podcast. So, uh, that no one listened. Yeah. To. And then it, it took, <laughs> it took six months until we finally got started, but it was, um, I guess we can thank you, Dwayne, for kind of the inspiration, the inspiration to, to start doing something with this. And, and one of our big focuses, in addition to connecting our listeners with these organizations, is to connect the organizations together. So uh, as you're coming into the Mid-Atlantic, I think that's we want to help you in any way we, we can. And I think one of the ways we can initially help you is by connecting you with some of these organizations that we've had on or, or are planning on having on as well. Yeah, I think I think uh, you should probably talk with John Park from New Jersey Audubon. Yep. I think that would be. And a I actually great... brought your name up to him when he was here a week or two ago. <laughs> so we have some people who will probably be contacting you in the not too distant future. But well, that'd be great. I really appreciate that. Yeah. But with that, we want to thank everyone for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening about the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. Make sure you follow them at www.segrasslands.org, uh, Facebook at Southeastern Grasslands. And uh, on Twitter at SE Grasslands. Um, really, the social media stuff you guys are doing is great. So make sure you look there. Thank everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. I'd like to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we now also have a question and answer line yeah. uh, that we, we really would like everyone to take advantage of. You can call us at area code 215 215- three four six six one eight nine and you can leave a comment or ask a question if we pick your question or comment we'll play it on the air uh and answer it on a future uh podcast so and let's not forget about the native plants healthy planet facebook group uh as always let's keep the conversation going make sure you're sharing and commenting on the nature nature post to win a copy of dr sala's new book yeah and you can listen to the native plants healthy planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com um, also on Apple Podcasts, thank you for the five-star reviews from H. Pates and, oh, man, friend. Reeves, 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 Reeves D. D. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they are now entered to win a copy of that, uh, the Nature and Nature book as well. Um, so make sure you leave a review if you want to win. 
So and um, you have a couple more weeks. Yeah, I think two more weeks. To you end can it. also listen on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran, uh, Dr. Estes. Thank you again so much. Uh, I love this one. Thank you for being a part of this. Uh, Thanks, guys. Uh, anytime, anytime. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. We will see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. This will be a show I know absolutely nothing about. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And uh, welcome to episode 40 of the only show that the host advice will get you killed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also don't know a lot about today's topic, but I do know I know more than you do. You do. So. You do. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely curious, and I know our listeners uh, are as well. Uh, you had posted in the Facebook group a little bit ago um mm -hmm. if anyone had questions and it would it went wild with questions yeah it's something that we've seemed to approach yes. at times on on the uh, previous episodes of the podcast but we never really got into it other than saying oh yeah this is something you can eat yeah but um well my one experience <laughs> we haven't really dove into it fully and the reasoning is my one experience is and I, i've mentioned it before your father asked me if winter berries were edible and i told him yes and they're they're not so it's yeah. you know i'm not someone to give advice on this topic i should i should stay away from it because i realize i don't know yeah. but i'm gonna put my learning cap on today and i have a cap on anyway because we have no heat so I'm <laughs> yeah. we just happen to walk in the office to no heat today and uh, i'm glad this one isn't on video because yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here like all <laughs> shivering, <a little laughs> shivering and muddled up but uh i have my learning cap on and i am ready to absorb yeah me too it's it's a topic i've really uh like we've said before my brother is really into um i don't want to say living off the land but but finding things in the woods that he can consume and uh i've always wanted to take that step but uh, i'm not the best with plan id all the time so i'd never really felt confident enough to get into it so i'm ready to yeah. learn yeah and my my I've, I've mentioned before too my fiance and her mother both having grown up in poland yeah. you know for, having a farm and forage for mushrooms and it was part of their culture and you know she's kind of lost that so she's mm -hmm. interested yeah. i'm interested it's perfect time yeah so with that i want to say today's guest is a hall of fame forager uh, author and all around just interesting guy just reading up on him on the internet and hearing things about him just I'm captivated by by everything he has going on. We're really honored to have on today uh, Sam Thayer. So Sam, I'm honored to be here. <laughs> oh. But I got to ask you something. Yeah. Um, I I'm getting you guys mixed up because I can't see your faces. <laughs> um, but who is who is saying that he has no experience foraging? Uh, that's Fran. It's me. Yeah. Fran. Okay. So. Have you ever picked blueberries before? I, you know what? I have picked low bush blueberries before. That's that's yeah, one see, see. because it's something we sell, and then I'm confident on my ID. And I actually had kids picking it on a scout camping trip, and I got yelled at for having them. <laughs> for so for, here's here's the fascinating thing that I find is that the people um, when people gather something uh, growing wild to eat. They don't consider that foraging. Mm -hmm. So if I ask a group of 100 people, 
you know, uh, uh, maybe a somewhat random crowd, how many of you forage for wild food? And 23 hands go up out of 100. And then I say, if I'm around here, I'll say, how many of you have picked wild blueberries? And every hand goes up. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's more people picking blueberries than foraging. Well, how is that possible? Because they don't consider it foraging because if they do it, it's normal. Yeah. And foraging sounds weird. Um, and, and when I got into foraging, it was when I was a little kid. It was because I was hungry. And it wasn't foraging. It was just food. It was just a way to get food I had discovered. Um, and, you know, I didn't even learn the term foraging pertaining to this activity of mine until I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and and I, always, I found it kind of offensive for the first five or six years. Like it suggested... <laughs> aimless wandering, searching for food. And I was like, no, uh-uh, I know where this stuff is. I'm just going to get it. So I would tell people I was a gatherer, or I would yeah. say I'm berry picking. I didn't use the term foraging until recently when the media decided that it was like the term for this activity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think the only two things I've ever picked wild and eaten are blueberry, low bush blueberry and blackberry. When I was out in Oregon on business, there was wild uh, blackberry uh, neighboring one of the farms we were on, and and someone ID'd and said, "You should try these. We eat these all the time." That was probably the only thing, but I didn't do it for because I was hungry. I did it to try it. Like mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, I know this, and I know I can eat it." Let's let's try it. But I've never done it to sustain myself or to like to take it home. Mm-hmm. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, well it still counts. It still counts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now my my fiance, I've told this story before. Growing up in Poland, her grandfather taught her how to forge for mushrooms and one one of the interesting tactics were they didn't know all the must mushrooms. But he taught her that if you're not sure if it's poisonous or not, stick the tip of your tongue on the gills of the mushroom. Just like not lick it, but put your tongue there. And if it tingles, then it's poisonous. Stay away from it. Like that was their barometer <laughs> for for foraging mushrooms. You know, um, I recommend avoiding any such simplified rule yes. like that. But yeah. what's interesting is that um, uh Rural people develop little folk tests like that, um, but if you actually look into it, it's usually more specific than that. Like, for example, say her grandfather, a uh, rural Polander, uh, said that, right? Yes. But there was another mushroom. There may be, maybe you went to put your tongue on a mushroom, and he would say, no, 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 don't put your tongue on that one, right? Yeah. Um, so, so the rule is not as broadly applied as it sounds like. Um, kind of like when somebody gives you instructions for something and it's real brief instructions and they, they forgot about 16 contingencies that you're going to trip over. Um, so when we hear these rules, the person actually foraging, wasn't, this wasn't the only rule they had. This was a rule that they had that they applied in a situation and it got kind of carried on into the next generation who wasn't doing that as, as this kind of simplified mm-hmm. rule. But if you apply a simplified rule like that, broadly, eventually it's going to get you into trouble. Maybe not the first time or, you know, but eventually it'll, it'll get you into trouble. You know, and it's, it's funny that sometimes you don't realize that until you're doing it. We're, we're doing a practice at work where we're, we're writing out standard operating procedures. And I, I picked one purposefully thinking it would be the easiest one to do. And I could describe it in 10 steps. And I'm about 40 steps in, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I forgot about all these things. It's not. It's really not as simple as I think. I, in my head, I think it's simple, 
But if I had to explain it to someone, it's really nowhere near that simple. There's a lot of a lot of factors that I didn't even think about. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that your uh, fiance is uh, from Poland uh, because here in the Midwest, there's a large Polish community in the Chicago area. Okay, and I I get a lot of uh, Polish people in my uh, edible plant workshops, and I'm just to apply some broad generalizations here, they are the best students. Um, <laughs> and it's, been, it's really nice. And a, lot, and a lot of times they've taught me some things that, that uh, I didn't know. Um, and, uh, but also I had a, a great moment with one uh, Polish woman who's been to a number of my workshops talking about the cow parsnip, the native cow parsnip, okay. which there's a very close relative in Europe which is uh, goes by the name uh, borscht or something very similar yeah. in Polish. Yeah. And um, she said, no, no, that's a soup. I said, yeah, but the soup is named for this plant. And, of course, we're in the modern age. She said, well, I'm going to text my grandma in Poland right now. <laughs> and so she texted her grandma, is there a plant called borscht? <laughs> you know? And she didn't get a response for like six minutes, and we're in the middle of the class, and dings, and she says, Oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, picture of the, the the European cow parsnip, which is fl- only slightly different. Um, it actually does. I, I found it growing feral uh, in New York City two years ago. The European cow parsnip. Oh wow! But um, it, it's really similar to our native cow parsnip. I I, I I found it interesting with with Agatha because growing up in communist Poland, they they definitely were more in touch with the land because they had to be. They depended on it. Um, and they had a forest that was part of their property, so that was part of their every day, you know. And it's something that I think a lot of us have never had to rely on. So you don't you don't think about it, or you don't know as much. Yeah, and and that's why there's been an explosion in um, um, books written about foraging, right? So it's mm-hmm. the opposite of what we think. But when some when everybody does something, there's nothing written about the topic. Um, and then as it becomes less common, then there will be things written about it. So you can't go to the store right now and you can't buy a book called How to Drive a Car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because everybody knows how to do that for the most part. It's, it's part of our common cultural knowledge. But uh, similarly, as fewer and fewer people cook at home, there's been an unbelievable proliferation of cookbooks. Um, so some people think that foraging is becoming more popular, and that's why we're seeing a lot of media coverage and, and books about it. But actually, I think the opposite trend has been going on steadily now for you know the last few thousand years, um, and it's still continuing, uh, but we're seeing more and more uh, media coverage of it. Yeah, I, I think with the, the pandemic, a lot of our listeners had questions because they wanted to start – doing more sustainable things on their own property or, or just be able to fend for themselves. And even, I, I listen, I've mentioned before, I listen to a lot of hunting podcasts. Actually, how I became familiar with Sam was through a hunting podcast where they mentioned he written a part in a book. Um, they were they were pushing. Um, but the, the hunting population has grown during the pandemic because more people, oh, the supermarket doesn't have as much food. I live in a rural, rural or suburban area where I can hunt and maybe I could source some of my own food and that's kind of even fueled my own um, pursuit into the foraging aspect with plants is I hunt I fish I dabble with uh, like blueberries and blackberries and um, some of the things I know I can consume but I'm really interested in the concept of okay this is a deer I shot 
and these were the foods that it was around and possibly eating in the wild as well. I'm actually pairing those instead of your regular baked potato and broccoli yeah. or whatever you have in the freezer or <laughs> fridge at home. I want to actually source that whole meal and say, hey, this was from the woods that's right behind our house. Everything on the on the plate was from there. And uh, and that's what we found with our listeners as well. Yeah. But as I mentioned in the, in the preamble, is it's kind of daunting when you don't know all the plants. Yeah. Um, and like where do you start yeah well that's a great question um and the the great thing about foraging is uh you don't need to know all the plants okay you just need to know one plant and uh the plant you're going to eat that's the only one you need to know <laughs> and um and so i i will often tell people that learning foraging is like learning a language there's an incredible amount to it and it takes years to actually become fluent on the other hand, it's not like a language in that if you know one word in Japanese and you go to Japan, you're, you're not going to be able to communicate, right? <laughs> but if you know one food, you can eat that food. There's no limit to how you can apply that knowledge. Um, so I tell people the place to start is a place you frequent. Um, maybe your backyard. Maybe it's a woods where you go camping frequently. Okay. Um, a park. You often walk your dog wherever. Just someplace you frequent. And the, the plant you start with is a plant you see a lot. Um, and then you, learn, you identify it. And that might take you a while. Identifying plants for somebody who's just getting into uh, plant identification can be daunting. Yeah. Well, you know what? There's daunting things in life. It's not supposed to always be easy. Just do it. Um, and, and you can, of course, ask a knowledgeable person if you have a knowledgeable person you trust that you can ask. But it's better to get some resources um, get a few books and actually go through the process yourself of identifying that plant. It might take you a couple of years. If you can't identify this one you picked out, then pick out another one and try to identify a different one that you see frequently. Um, and when you learn its name, then you find out if it's edible. Mm -hmm. um, now, some people uh, tell me they only want to learn the edible plants. And that's like saying I only want to learn uh, beautiful words because I want to write poetry. So I don't want to learn the boring words, just the poetic ones. You've got to learn the whole language to write poetry. Yeah. So if you're going to identify, you know, edible plants, you need to learn something about plants. So just find one and identify it. If it turns out that it's not edible, you didn't hurt yourself one bit. Then just find another one and identify that one. And you're not going to have to go far until you find something that's edible. Yeah. And so start that way. Or start with the plant you already know. Maybe you know what a black walnut is. Mm. You've heard that they're edible. You've just never done anything with it. Just get off your butt and figure out how to make something out of black walnuts. Yeah. Um, so you start with one plant, and you start in a place you frequent. You know, it's, And then it's not so daunting. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in my ability to ID plants until I have to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> then all of a sudden my confidence goes out the window. But but at the same time, it's we're living in an age where it's almost as easy, it's almost too easy to identify plants yeah. with all the apps out there. You don't have to collect samples, bring it back to your textbook, or lug the textbooks into the woods to, to go through that key and figure yeah. out what it is. Now you can take a picture and depending on how much you trust your app, you know what it is right then and there. Yeah. Um, but, but it's funny, black walnut is actually one of the first trees I learned because I learned that when you throw them at each other and they hit your clothes and you have them on your hands, <laughs> they stain <laughs> the tan and stain your clothes and your hands. 
So that was. And they could hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do hurt. <laughs> yeah, I, I threw one at my cousin Katie when I was ten. I didn't mean to hit her. I was just trying to throw it at the 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 chicken shed at my grandma's house, and I wasn't that coordinated, and I hit her right in the head. Oh, it's just traumatic. She doesn't oh. even remember it, but oh, I remember it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I felt so horrible. Um. Black walnut was one of the first trees that I learned, but I learned it as a food. My grandpa liked to eat them, um, and I was probably five years old when he taught me a black walnut, and I never forgot. I still eat them to this day. Literally, I ate some this day. Wow. You know, and it's Um, – it's funny even not just – you know, when I think of foraging, I think immediately of fruit or nuts, um, Mm -hmm. and that's the first thing my my brain kind of goes to, but – um, I was out with my fiance at a park, and I can't remember what tree was blooming, but she's like, oh, these blooms are edible. Like we used to take these and eat these blooms. That's something I hadn't even considered as far – you know, even though I had known that, it's it's something that my brain hadn't even processed. You know, everything you might be able to buy and eat, like every class of produce item, mm-hmm. there's like 30 times that diversity in wild plants. So. Mm-hmm. We eat like flower buds, right? Of yeah. broccoli. Yeah. Um, but as, as as far as flower bud clusters, just before they open, that you could eat in that you could forage in your area, there's at least thirty. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's just tons of them. You know, we eat uh, as far as shoot vegetables, like we eat asparagus, and that's about it. I guarantee you, there's there's probably more than thirty. There's probably more like seventy different mm-hmm. shoot vegetables that you could eat just in in your area. So yeah, the 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 diversity of what you can eat is remarkable. Um, but I want to also get back to that thing mentioning apps. I don't know today if there's any apps that I would trust. I highly <laughs> yeah, doubt it. Yeah. You got So so one thing about foraging is it does require this level of certainty, um, and I call this contradictory confidence. This is the confidence that you, if someone told you you were wrong. Mm-hmm. you would contradict them, right? So yeah. I use the banana example. I tell people it has to pass the banana test. Like, let's say you were eating a banana, right? Okay. And I said, hey, hey, I'm a botanist, and I'm telling you that's not a banana. That's a deadly false banana. You'd laugh at me. Yeah. You'd tell me I was full of crap. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and so that's where you would need to be to eat mm-hmm. anything. And you may think, well, but bananas are so distinct. Actually, the cultivated plants we eat are no more distinct than the wild plants we don't eat. It's just that they don't look distinct and familiar because we have not yet gone through that process of familiar, familiarizing ourselves with the plants. So um, if I was to uh, have a head of iceberg lettuce mm-hmm. and green cabbage, anybody who's grown up making coleslaw and salad isn't going to confuse those plants at all. It's, it's inconceivable that they would accidentally make a you know, shredded uh, cabbage salad <laughs> thinking it was iceberg lettuce. It's not going to happen. And yet, I could bring the same two things to a group of 14-year-old boys. I didn't know this because I did this. Uh, and I had, I had like three out of, out of uh, 40-some that could tell the two apart. Wow. Right? And people think they look exactly the same. They're not familiar with them. And so this is when you hear that two wild plants look, are lookalikes, um, they're almost never more alike than cabbage and lettuce. Um, so everybody can make every relevant distinction. 
you know, uh, everybody has it within them. You just have to gain the familiarity, which is not instant. And you, so there's really a process you need to go through with each plant you learn. But once you learn it, you have it forever. You are never going to go eat a blackberry and be like, wait a second, maybe this is a deadly false blackberry. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. And, but foraging does require that additional level of confidence and it requires some, some cognitive work on the part of the doer. No app is going to do it and no mm-hmm. book is going to do it without you being a robust participant in the process. Um, and so this is something that a person who grows up foraging knows and, and they know it from, you know, from so early in life that they don't really consider how big of a thing it is that they know. But for people who have foraged very little, it's hard to wrap your brain around that, like that level of confidence is clicking in. I'll give you an example of, of, of how powerful this is during the Lewis and Clark expedition. uh, When they were returning from the West coast, these 30 or so uh, men, they, uh, they were very hungry, and they were trading with the native people for the dried roots of three carrot family root vegetables that they were subsisting on for months, meat and these dried root vegetables. Okay. And one person in camp, Sacagawea, knew how to identify those, mm-hmm. and she was gathering them around camp every single day for her people in her, in her lodging, right? Okay. Um, and... N- the, the, the leaders, Lewis and Clark, they would not allow any of their white boys to go out and gather those plants because they were afraid they would kill themselves or somebody. And so they literally, they went miles every single day. They sent out two men, 20, 30, 40 miles on horseback to trade a village, super valuable stuff. They took all the buttons off all their coats to trade for this food because they were afraid that they would get it wrong. The 16-year-old girl was going to get it right because she had grown up thinking that way, but he didn't trust a single one of his men to gather those plants. So you do need this level of confidence that we are not accustomed to acting with Mm -hmm. in our our, this day and age. But the the payout is incredible. You know, for me, the one takeaway I had from the time I picked wild blackberries is that it ruined blackberries for me. Any time that I buy blackberries from a store, I keep hoping that they taste the way they taste it when I had them off the bush and they never do it, it completely ruined it for me but i keep trying it's been it's been 20 years and i still haven't come close to that yeah the payout is the best food on earth both flavor wise nutritionally and i would say like spiritually like how you feel when you eat them and go through that process yeah oh totally totally so did yes I, I, we have a lot of questions for you, so yeah. I want to move along a little bit. Sure. And I know this is another like trick question for you, but we wanted to know what's the best season for foraging. Um, and I'm sure that's kind of probably that like you can do it in every season. So maybe you even share some of the highlights of each season with us. Sure. I mean, for for me, fall is definitely like the peak of my foraging year. Okay. Um, so I mean, spring is a time of greens and shoot vegetables you know very early spring is a great time for root vegetables but in the spring and early summer i am foraging just for stuff i'm eating that day you know and 
I eat a fair amount of leafy greens, and in general, I would say the easiest way that you can improve your health and save money at the same time with foraging is to learn like 10 or 15 common leafy greens in your area because we don't eat enough leafy greens in our diet. And uh, I don't need to go into detail in terms of why, but that's an incredible way to improve your health and save money and get the best leafy greens in the world. But when you get to midsummer, you start getting fruit ripening. And we start to collect a little bit more fruit, uh, save a little bit of stuff for the winter. Um, by late summer, when we're picking blueberries, we, we're starting to put up food for the year. I mean, we our family goes on blueberry picking expeditions. Last year, we froze or canned or dried 78 gallons of wild blueberries. That's a lot of fruit. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. And then, uh, uh, and it's like, it's kind of like this steadily increasing, it reaches a crescendo like in October, like there's more fruit, the fruit gets bigger, like you get stuff like wild plums and persimmons and apples and pawpaws in the fall, so all the big fruit ripens in the fall, and then you get nuts, like the big crops, and we collect lots of acorns and hickory nuts and walnuts and butternuts, um, and then, uh, um, and then, Basically, I'm foraging like crazy until either the ground freezes solid or the snow covers the ground. And then winter is my time for processing, right? right. I'm cracking nuts, I'm shelling nuts, I'm grinding flowers, I'm, you know, doing stuff like that. So, you know, foraging is half gathering and half cooking. Mm -hmm. So the cooking, the preparation part doesn't slow down at all in the winter. So I don't really feel like there's a big foraging lull in the winter. I do go through a period where I'm like, man, I want to pick some some leafy greens or, you know, just, you know, there's a few teas we can gather in the winter, but not much to gather. Um, and then probably our biggest, most intense harvest of the year is maple syrup, which is the end of winter. Mm -hmm. And then the cycle kind of starts again. So, uh, but, um, at your latitude, there's a little bit to collect through most of the winter. You get down to a place like Houston, you know, Tallahassee, whatever the Southern and the deep South. Winter is actually a great time for foraging a lot of leafy greens. Hmm. Um, so it's slower in the winter, and there's even quite a few winter fruits that ripen in the south. I, I didn't even think of syrup, and that's something yeah. that actually your dad does. He yeah, does they're birch boiling syrup. Uh, yeah. um, red maple sap today. Yeah, yeah. They got a, maybe 10 gallons, and we don't make a lot. We only make a little bit that we share amongst our family. But, um, yeah, I never even thought about that as a – of foraging practice. Either did I. But Either did I. Yeah, it's too no, too normal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Weird, you know. Yeah. That, that, that's just totally normal. Yeah. And I just wanted to real quick, and I know you touched on it and said we don't need to go on the reasons why, but the leafy greens, you know, and that's something that we've touched about on on numerous episodes of the podcast. Is you know, plants are the the resource for capturing the sun's energy, and and by eating those, you're getting that direct transference of energy from mm-hmm. the plants. So it's they're they're extremely important. Ahead, yeah, yeah, and you know, human beings instinctively try to increase our calorie density because if you ever forage for a hundred percent of your food, you'll realize that it's actually hard to fit enough calories into your digestive system. Mm. Um, and so that is actually the hard the hard part with foraging isn't finding enough calories; it's fitting enough into your intestines um, <laughs> over the long term. Yeah, and so greens are not calorie dense, and so they they historically, you know, evolutionarily, we're a really important part of the human diet mm-hmm. um, because they're super available and super labor efficient, right? But we instinctively look for the high calorie density foods and then we exclude the low calorie density but highly nutritious foods like leafy greens 
um, or any fruit with a very strong flavor, which usually indicates you know high levels of antioxidants and anthocyanins and vitamins and minerals. And so we instinctively avoid the best foods for us. Um, and and so uh, we need to like override that a little bit and look at the longer picture because you start eating leafy greens a lot, you realize that you feel pretty darn good when you eat a lot of them. And I don't mean yeah. tons and tons, but you know, eat them every day. Yeah. And, so one of the things you you kind of mentioned, even you said you had um, black walnut today, but how much of your, I guess, weekly diet, monthly diet, yearly diet is things that you've actually foraged, or I guess you could say bartered for, that were forged someplace? So, you know, I don't really keep track of that, um, like, real precisely. Mm -hmm. I have at times, but it gets boring, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's probably half. Um, wow. of our diet, you know, and, um, sometimes we go for periods just cause we want to challenge ourselves and say, Hey, let's see just wild for this week or whatever. Um, I think we got one coming up this spring. We're going to do that for, for a little bit, mm -hmm. or, you know, we raise a few chickens and stuff and we have ducks or yeah. eggs. So okay. we might do just like the no grocery store for a month. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but you know, it's, and it's been that way steady about half my diet for more than 20 years. What? Um, wow. and, 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 it, you know, I started foraging when I was a little kid. Um, so I feel like it's really uh, it's really easy to replace, like, a good portion of your diet. The hard parts are the cheap foods, like the starchy foods, the mm -hmm. beans, the wheat, the rice. Um, those are the things that are, are hard to supplant with, with wild-gathered stuff. Now, I know this, this is going to take us off topic just a, a, a tad, and we can steer back, but you were mentioning that, that cooking is a large part of foraging throughout the year. Are there, are there favorite recipes that you have? Is there something like in particular that, that you make from something that you forge? You're like, this is better than, than anything else that you can get. You know, so sometimes I have trouble giving people recipes because the food that's in my pantry is so different enough from the food in mm -hmm. other people's pantry yeah. that they often came and relate to what I, like, what I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, like something, you know, pretty simple like we'll do, you know, wild rice, maple syrup, and hickory nuts as a breakfast cereal. Mm -hmm. wow. And it doesn't okay. get any better than that. Wow. Um, and real wild rice that actually tastes good, you know, by itself, where you don't have to dilute it because it's you know tastes kind of musty. But actual wild rice that has that good fresh grain flavor, really great. But then there's other cereals I could say like I my like absolute favorite breakfast cereal is mm -hmm. like. Wapato. Well, nobody, nobody has wapato, but I can tell you, I, I you know, I, 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 I dry it, like I, I crumb, I boil it. It's a root. It's a tuber. I okay. boil it and I crumble it and then I roast it in small pieces. Now after it's roasted, I'll put it through a coarse flour grinder and it's like a cornmeal-like texture. Then I rehydrate that like a hot cereal. Um, and then I like to put, I like it with wild strawberries in it. Um, but any, you know, raspberries, blueberries, whatever. A little bit of milk, the only non-wild thing I put in there, and you don't have okay. to have it in there, and some hickory nuts, and oh my goodness, that is like the like the ultimate breakfast cereal. That, that sounds good. Um, that sounds really good, yeah. actually. Now my stomach's starting to rumble a little bit. And that's a um, yeah, but you can't, you can't envision it because you've never had, you've probably never had wapato in your mouth. That I, flavor, this like sweet corn, with a touch of grapefruit like what on earth you can't compare it to anything like like that's why i describe it and people think well that's 
doesn't sound right. It's like it doesn't sound right, but man, it's right. It's perfectly right. Well, it's it's funny now that you're we're saying this, and I was saying, you know, my experience is low as far as foraging, but I'm thinking now all the things that I've eaten here because of working here. Like I've had duck potato. Um, yeah. Okay. That that Tom's father had had uh, harvested and brought in. Um, Tom made uh, fritters out of um, elderberry flowers, you know, and I've had that here. So yeah, there's definitely. Now that I'm thinking about it, I've had more than I I thought I did. Yeah, I tried to tell you in the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, the lines are the lines are more blurry than you think. As long as you let them be blurry, then then uh, who knows how much you've had? Because it, everything you eat was wild and foraged somewhere mm-hmm. at some point yeah it's now given that like and and this is something you grew up doing are there historical references that you've used or, or places that you go to check to see how it was used in the past like how native americans had used it or or if something was usable before beforehand do you do you reference some of this stuff as you go into territory that you're unfamiliar with Oh, I, I, that's like, I spent so much of my time doing that. It's a blast. It's, uh, I have a whole like library with like a thousand books and thousands of research papers and stuff. So, I mean, I use, you know, the, the starting point for a lot of people is Merman's Ethnobotany. It's, a, it's like an encyclopedic book where you can look up a plant and it'll list the Native American uses that the author found that were documented documented generally by white people later interviewing native people whose cultures were food cultures were semi-intact or sometimes more so um uh, and it'll list the plant and a very brief description of the use and if you're diligent you can go back and find the original source the older ones are almost all not copyrighted anymore so they're available online um and you can read what was this like what was actually said about how these plants were used and i i doing that all the time i mean look up uh, but also archaeology. Uh, hmm. So there's a lot of plants that um, were used in eastern North America, but we have no historical written evidence or ethnographic evidence of them being used okay. because the native cultures were displaced um, rapidly before any of that information was recorded and may have been, say, moved to Oklahoma or Iowa or someplace further west from an eastern state where the same vegetation didn't grow. And so that the traditions have been lost. And so uncovering and recreating those things through uh, very sparse historical records or archaeological records is, is really fun. Um, maybe some people would say daunting, but I say fun. And there's, there's also a, a lot of the same plants in Europe as North America. So like currently I'm reading a book that was written by a Swiss author in the 1920s that's not in English, um, but is referencing sources, old sources that he was finding at that time, European sources and compiling them about uh, uh, native North temperate plants around the world. And he's got 740 species, really fascinating stuff. And a lot of plants that are obscure but maybe common and good foods. Um, so, and the beauty of this is, like, if you just look in the edible wild plant field guides, there's there's really just a few things, and it's they mostly focus on what I would call European farmer folk knowledge mm-hmm. that is still alive today. And there's nothing wrong with that knowledge, but it's limited in what it covers. Whereas, you know, my wife and I have been in this like 20 some year project. Well, I started 20 some years ago to like rekindle this tradition of making hickory nut oil, 
which I can find no evidence of anybody making in North America for about 170 years. Wow. Yet it was a major staple food. It was a significant industry. The native people were trading with European settlers for two or three hundred years, hickory oil, um, and the tradition is dead. Wow. Um, and this is like something that's sitting right before our eyes. Um, so, uh, and I don't know when's the, you know, right time to get into this, but you had talked about, uh, uh, we were going to speak about, um, is it possible to give back as much as we take? That was, um, that was, and, and the sustainability of foraging. Yeah. Our listeners um, were, pro- were really concerned about their footprint. Like, can they take too much? Can they give back? Like that was a, a huge concern that came up immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so and it should be, and this is so. I guess what I was just saying about this lost knowledge is kind of a, a segue into that topic and that question, which for me is the biggest part of why I'm so deeply fascinated with foraging. I I grew up hungry and eating wild things, but I grew up as a lover of nature. It was my place to get away from my horrible family. Um, you know, like just to get out in the woods and and not come home until dark. Yeah. Um, and then go to bed and, and, you know, and avoid them. That was kind of my process as as a child. And if I was going to be away from my family, I had to have something to eat when I was out in the woods. Um, and, and so, you know, I, the, the idea of this, of nature being destroyed was just like, it just weighed heavily on me as a child. I became a nature conservancy volunteer when I was 14. Um, you know, I became a certified nature conservancy spokesperson when I was 17. I mean, I was volunteering prairie restoration and licking envelopes to send out. And I mean, I was, you know, participating in prairie burns. And I mean, uh, one of my huge interests always was still is, you know, reptile and amphibian conservation and native plant conservation. Um, so this is really important to me. Um, and you know, but what is also, uh, important to me is is this bigger picture that for 300,000 years Homo sapiens lived as gatherers and hunters um, without with, with with some notable and important exceptions without destroying nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, um, about 500 years ago we had what the beginning of what we call you know the colonial period and we often don't sit step back and look at where we are in history we're at the close of the colonial period we're, we're and right now like this is in 3000 years that's what they're going to state you know 2000 the year 2000 was roughly the close of the colonial period um and this is a big deal so people from a small part of the world took over all of the rest of the surface of the globe in 300 years wow. um and in that process they used to justify that, you know, morally, uh, a colonial mythology. And there's two really important components of that colonial mythology. And one of them is that humans don't belong in nature. Um, and another one is that nature is worthless. And I, wish, I said there's two, but really there's three, because those two combine into this really important one, which is humans that live in nature are not humans, right? And so... These these are fundamental to the civilized thought process for the entire period of colonialism. Hunter-gatherers are not people. Nature is worthless, and people do not belong in nature. When you put these three things together, you cannot have a sustainable relationship to nature. It is impossible. And so we have been um, we have been 
destroying cultural knowledge that did not fit in with the, this colonial mythology. So I mentioned hickory oil, right? Yeah. Now, we have a particular hickory in North America, our most common, most widespread um, you know, bitternut hickory. It is literally like an economically perfect gift to humankind from nature as an oilseed crop. I, I'll go out on a limb and say, not on a limb actually at all, I'm right next to the trunk and I'm holding really tight. This is better than the olive in terms of its economic potential. Um, and it is, if, if the olive were native to North America, today it would be relegated to like a no place, a nothing. It would be yeah. a historical footnote. It would be worthless garbage. That's exactly how we think of our native, unbelievable oil crop, the young bud hickory, right? Yeah. And, and so when I go to farmers and ask about picking their, their hickory nuts to make oil, literally they mean, oh, you mean the trash hickory. I mean, yeah, the trash <laughs> hickory. So that is how we think of this, this gift. Like if we want a sustainable culture, we need this knowledge desperately. We cannot have a sustainable food culture unless we accept that the food that's here is food and it's real and it's worth something. So if nature is worthless, the only way we can get what we need is to destroy nature and replace it. And this idea is deeply embedded, even in the conservation and environmental movements. Yeah. It, it, give an example, I, I you know, had a little bit of a, uh, a, a disagreement on paper with a person representing a native plant society who, rec who said that it's not okay to collect elderberries from the wild, but we can plant elderberry uh, uh, on, on, like, say, on our property, and then we'll provide wildlife habitat and elderberries for ourselves to eat. So what she's saying there implies that nature by itself cannot produce a sustainably harvestable surplus. But nature, when it's recreated by human hands, can do that, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that is, that is like this psychological stumbling point that civilized people have about our relationship to nature that like makes it impossible to have a sustainable relationship. Um, and so uh, for me, the knowledge of these wild plants is it's the first building blocks of a sustainable culture. It is possible to over-harvest things, um, absolutely. Does it happen? Occasionally. Um, I think we hear about it a thousand times disproportionately to how often it actually happens. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of myths about it floating around out there. Um, and and, those, and those, like when we have a deep belief, it finds a way to seep to the surface. So, uh, you know, I don't even like to participate in foraging discussions online because there's so much of this... <laughs> We don't like having <laughs> native plant conversations online either. <laughs> yeah, just ar arguing over, you know, like somebody shows a picture of anything they gather and someone else says, you gathered too much. Mm -hmm. um, and th what happens is when you go out there and you put your hands on the plant and then you take your hands and you bring that plant to your mouth and you eat it, there's something magical that happens. And it, it happens in your brain. And we actually have a word for it. Um, you know, it's called gratitude. Every yeah. language has a word for gratitude. And gratitude is not something that, like, hippies made up in the 60s. Gratitude yeah. has existed for the, as long as human beings have existed because it's a natural response to, of us to the landscape that supports us. 
And by eating those wild plants, we, that gratitude grows in our brain and makes us feel deeply connected. And all outdoor activities build that gratitude, but none of them, none of them build it as strongly, as firmly, or as keenly as gathering and eating food. None of them. And everybody who forages knows that. And so I don't need to preach to the people that are foragers about conservation. I only need to share the details because I know the desire to, to act right in accordance with the landscape is in them. The desire is there. They care. You cannot forage without caring. Now, there's a few people that are commercial harvesters that really don't care because they're not eating what they're harvesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, people that forage deeply care. And I'm not saying commercial harvesters don't deeply care either because I am part – I am blessed to be part of the living wild rice tradition here in the Midwest. I learned directly from – the unbroken Native American tradition, and I participate in it now. And it is not a. There's no racial boundaries to this tradition. There's lots of Native Americans. There's lots of white people, and there's a number of Asian people that harvest wild rice up here. And the commercial harvesters, I say people like me, I sell some rice every year. There's thousands of us who sell some rice every year. Are we are just as keenly interested in this as every, as the people who are not selling any. Uh, in terms of the conservation, and we are the, we are the ones who have protected the wild rice. In the areas that don't have a living rice tradition, the mm-hmm. rice has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are forces here. There are people who really, really want to get rid of the wild rice, desperately want to get rid of it, and we are the ones who have stopped them. You know, if it, one of the things that we've noticed in this podcast has been such a learning experience for Tom and myself as as we've progressed through this now almost a year now. Our most Three of our most popular episodes, and I'd say Dr. Enrique Sala from National Geographic, mm-hmm. Doug Tallamy, and um, Benjamin Vogt, all kind of echoed a very similar sentiment that most humans feel as though they're the center of the universe <laughs> and and the plants and the wildlife and everything kind of revolve around them where it should be the soil is the universe, plants are the sun – and none of us can survive without them, and you have to change your way of thinking. It's, um, you know, we we talk about things like um, deer numbers being out of whack and eating all the native understory, which are affecting everything else. We're we we can do that as well because our numbers are out of whack, <laughs> and and we can overharvest. And and even last episode, Doctor Emil Devito was talking about the the town of Caviar in Delaware who shipped all their their sturgeon eggs out for caviar and then thought god had forsaken them because there was no more sturgeon in the ocean so it's you you know it's it's you have to change your way of thinking um that we are part of nature you have to get that connectivity back otherwise it it, the whole system's out of whack so i completely completely relate to what you're saying um and i completely appreciate the passion in which you're saying it yeah and you know uh, and certainly um there's too many people for everybody to go gather unlimited everything, anything, anytime they want. But there is also, there's not too many people for us to, for everybody to gather a substantial portion of their food. And that may sound crazy, but if it does, that means you haven't thought about it very much because right now we get our food from the land and there is actually um, a huge portion 
of the biomass um, is not planted intended still. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, roughly 18% of the world's uh, land surface is cultivated. Um, and that's, uh, uh, even within that system, there's a lot of not intentionally grown food. So some people will say, well, you could, should only gather invasive plants or you should only gather the non-natives or the weedy plants. Um, and I would say you should gather the things that you can gather sustainably. And Mm. then there's people who see foraging as only a negative, like you only take and that's part of our mythology of, of the stupid savage that, that the colonialists made up, right? So they, they refused to see what was happening. So you saw Native people in the Pacific Northwest with these camas meadows where they, would, they were gathering this, beautiful, this wild camas from these beautiful meadows of camas. Well, these were giant permaculture camas meadows that yeah. were intensively mm-hmm. and carefully managed that the Europeans called wilderness. Um, you know, so Native people have been operating with a different mindset for a long time. How long? Uh, you know, there's, ar- there's a few archaeologists arguing that in South Africa, uh, the area around uh, the Clasis River mouth has been managed for fire-dependent root vegetables for 100,000 years. Wow. Um, wow. There's a cave near the Clasis River mouth that was inhabited for about 90,000 years consecutively. I, that's sustainability there. People yeah. lived in this cave for 90,000 years. A good-sized village, maybe, I don't know, 800 to 1,000 people in one place for 90,000 years. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so this has always been part of the human birthright. We are not simple um, takers from nature. We are manipulators of nature. And we, we don't have the option of not manipulating nature. That's, that's not in our behavioral repertoire, and it's not, an, it's not a, an economic option anyways. So the question isn't will we manipulate nature, it is how will we manipulate nature. And I think we should, for example, in my region, we should have big areas that are hickory nut and sugar maple with an understory of ramps and may apples and nettles managed that way because we eat those things yeah um and that would be a lot better than corn and soybeans yeah and and you have to you know and even i don't know if it is for you in in the midwest for us hickory really only produces like a decent crop every other year of seed like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't consistently produce like a good mast every year so it's like that's even something to consider when you're when you're doing that yeah certainly i mean nut crops are inherently variable um they so so the casual observer of nut crops, they see the surplus over what wildlife eat, not the actual crop. Mm-hmm. Um, so the actual crop isn't nearly as variable as we imagine it is, but what because what we generally see is is uh you know the leftover after rodents have eaten their fill maybe zero 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 and then a lot and then zero a lot and then zero zero a lot, whereas the actual crop is 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 what we're seeing is like the peaks of the yeah. wave, it sometimes rising over that rodent, you know, consumption mm-hmm. level. Um, so uh, as, as soon as uh, nuts are managed a little bit differently, like given appropriate spacing, uh, then all of a sudden the crop appears to stabilize a lot more. Um, so this is what we see in pecan orchards. A lot of people don't know that the, the, a very large portion of the world pecan supply until recently, the majority was actually wild pecans, hmm. not oh. I not do. planted pecans, um, and you see the same thing when you're you know, when the, when they're managed that way. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you know, 
the inher- the benefit of woody crops is that they're perennial, mm-hmm. you know. But the negative side of that is that they generally have built-in crop fluctuation as as part mm-hmm. of their of their uh, reproduction strategy. Um, but you know, the idea that we sh- uh, should only take advantage of twenty percent or so of the food plants in the world, it just objectively doesn't seem like it can make sense. Like you could say we had a whole continent of North America and our food, our food, uh, what we eat on this continent today is maybe less than 1% food native to this Mm -hmm. continent. Like what is mathematically or logically, what is the chances that the foods that worked best on this continent just happen to come from China and the Mediterranean region. Yeah. There's a really, really low chance of that. No, it's you know? it, it's funny you mentioned historical perception too, because I, I immediately thought when you said savages, you know, our founding fathers referred to the Native Americans as savages in the Declaration of Independence, but yet they the Native Americans equally found it absurd like the Europeans were coming over, they urinate in the stream and then go downstream and drink drink out yeah. of the same stream. It's just it's funny the perception of what is right, you know. And it just seems like it was being done right here for so long until European intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I'm not I'm I'm not saying Native people were perfect or anything yeah. either. Oh, yeah. And I am what I what I what I want to be clear about though is is I'm I'm using the word savage in the sense, um, not in its modern sense where it's basically like a naughty word. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Savage meant hunter gatherer in in 1700. <laughs> there wasn't any ambiguity about what it meant. Um, and it also meant not human, um, you know, and, and if you look at old uh, um, anthropological literature, it's very clear that that's what the word meant. It, it meant hunter-gatherer and not human. Wow. Um, and the arguments being put forth, so they weren't saying they weren't doing things right. Uh, they were saying they were not human beings, and therefore they were wild animals and could be eradicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, was, that, that was the precise reason, reason for that logic. And, uh, you know, so... Um, we've lost touch with what that word meant and what its function was because it was such a dark and ugly part of our history. But, I mean, there's anthropological articles from the 1850s literally calling for the utter extermination of every single non-white race from the face of the earth. Wow. Wow. That's... Um, as the, using the excuse that they're savage, yeah. which means they're not human, which, which means they can be it makes it okay. And, yeah. and the term yeah. aboriginal also has that origin. So, so aboriginal means from a different origin. And what was being implied was that the biblical creation did not pertain to the people of Australia. Therefore, they did not have any rights that might be set forth in the Bible. Therefore, we could eradicate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, so, so this is really deep in the Western psyche, and it ha- we, we haven't dug it out. We haven't pulled the skeleton out and dusted it off and, and, and really dealt with it. Um, no, but, and I, uh, think, I think some people don't want to deal with it, but I'm glad we're discussing yeah, it too. Oh yeah. Because it's a, no, so, such some, a part some of Some people don't, and, and it's okay with me. I'll, I'll, bring up, I'll bring up the ugly stuff, and I'll take the heat for it if I have to. <laughs> yeah. But it's so, become such a part of our our daily life just from our food culture that like you mentioned in the very beginning we kind of washed away some of the the history of all these native foods that we have a lot of times right in our backyards or things that we cut down to build our our housing development that we live in that was all food and i love the example you use of of um the hickory nut 
canopy with the mayapple yeah. and the and the ramps and all that. Because you think of a cornfield or you think of a soybean field, it's one crop that's harvested at one time, and where in your example, well, you have three or four different food sources there that are harvested all in different seasons, and for the most part, are all perennial crops. You're, you can you're planting it once, and you're going back year after year after year to just collect that harvest at those certain times. And they're replenishing the soil, yeah. whereas agricultural mm. crops are taking from the soil and mm-hmm. depleting the soil, where these native uh, cultures or, yeah. or, or groupings completely take care of themselves. They, yeah, and they, they all feed off each other and help yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we haven't even explored these. I mean, J. Russell Smith came out with his tree crops book in 1929, and we haven't even explored what he suggested then, you know, but... Uh, a silvopasture system with <clears throat> oil nut hickories spaced at 50% canopy. The production of beef, according to the University of Missouri, uh, is, is with 50% hickory canopy versus no hickory canopy on permanent hill pasture land. The production of beef, 108% of the production without the trees. The production of grass, 95%. Okay, so the actually increased production of beef, but almost the same production of grass, um, and 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 th- then there's the hickory crop, and mm-hmm. then there's the soil stabilization, and there is the calcium pump of having the hickory's deep roots. Yeah. You know, it's just like it's a no-brainer to try our native crops uh, in in intensive uh, and extensive, you know, applications. I just feel like we can we can we can do so much better. Um, in every environmental metric, um, you know, by, by using some of these native foods. Yeah. yeah. And you're, I guess it kind of even ties into that concept of regenerative agriculture where uh, – and that was something Dr. Enrique Sala brought up as yeah. well. And, uh, and we've talked about having another podcast episode kind of delving into that, even though it's less about native plants. But in your concept, it does involve a lot of native plants and – Everything kind of feeds off each other, helps each other, is symbiotic, and um, and with the the cattle aspect, I'd assume you're getting a a much higher quality meat as well as getting that that production out of it because they're eating a better food than um, than corn and soy yeah. and whatever else we're we're pumping into them in feedlots. So no, that's a very interesting concept. Yeah, and you know, um, when we talk about foraging, most of the information we have about foraging and most of the plants covered in our foraging field guides are, you know, what I say, as I said before, farmer folk knowledge. These are plants gathered that grow inadvertently or spontaneously on the farm, right? So these are, uh, most of our knowledge or much of it refers to plants that aren't even growing in natural plant communities, Mm -hmm. but inadvertently on farming land. And when you say, you know, regenerative agriculture, I would say um, that encapsulates like what I'm doing on my property, I would say is regenerative agriculture with mostly native plants. Mm -hmm. So my property, uh, I have uh, uh, about 12 acres of abandoned cropland and then uh, another 12 or so acres of uh, pasture land that had scattered trees growing up in the woods and another you know, another section of actual, you know, woods that was, it was wooded pasture though. So I'm restoring the native edible and non-edible things in my wooded area. 
and I'm 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 planting. I have some apple trees in five acres, which was crop field when I bought it. And then there's crop field that was abandoned in the early 1980s. that grew, grew up with a pure stand of alder, which is native. Yeah. But I'm using that as like a nurse tree to cover a, a diverse, uh, you know, native herbaceous understory, uh, ramps, pokeweed, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and then uh, also planting, you know, food-producing shrubs that are native and pr- provide wildlife habitat, you know, wild plums, highbush cranberry, nannyberry, um, stuff, wild grape, elderberry, stuff like that. So, um, the, I mean, they, they can go they can go hand in hand. And this is something that I'm not doing this to not be commercially viable. Like yeah. I'm selling food yeah. that I'm producing this way and, and, and making a, a portion of my living at it. And it's something that I'm hoping, you know, other people can emulate. Um, and- the alders are a great and, choice too, just because they're nitrogen fixing. They're giving back in the same way a, a legume would would to the to the yeah, soil. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and the alders are just what took over here. Um, and I'm just uh, um, I found out that they're actually a great nurse crop for uh, the same understory vegetation that would grow in a mature like old growth hardwood forest. Like ramps mm-hmm. grow great under alders, for example. Okay. Um, I was surprised to learn. Um, and so I'm leaving them under the alders until they're well established, and then I'm, and then I'm putting you know hickories, over the alders, mm-hmm. um, and you know other larger trees. You, we we keep talking about native plants because that's what we do and and that's what we promote. But exotic and invasives are as much a part of all, our culture today as almost as native plants. Some people I think can recognize more exotic plants than they can uh, native plants. So, do you? Do you actively forage from invasives or exotic plants as well as as you're doing this? Like we obviously we like to promote native plants, and that's something that that we can connect with because uh, it's part of our heritage. But does this kind of seep in also? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I gather <clears throat> I gather quite a few um, <clears throat> non-native plants. Okay. Um, you know, if I'm in an area that's got autumn olives, I'm going to pick them because they're great food. Okay. Um, however, you know. Really, the bulk of my relationship to the invasive plants is eradicating them, yeah. not because they're bad, but because th- I have native plants that I want to, to be living here. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I have a place that I gather uh, spring vegetables, and it's been recently invaded by garlic mustard, and I don't let garlic mustard grow there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is actually another reason we desperately need foragers on the landscape, because these non-native plants are here to stay. Yeah. We have already culturally made the decision that we are not going to do anything about it. We could have, but we decided we weren't going to. Um, so we might keep them out of a few parks, but in general, we're going to let them run free and, and take over the landscape. We, you know, and, and, so, uh, and that's already happened to the extent that it's the cat's out of the bag now. Yeah. Um, and so if we are going to have any place with a native, what we would today consider a native plant community in 500 years, it will only be through the diligent and continuously applied effort of human hands. And I cannot envision any way that that will ever happen on a large scale other than people having an economic relationship with food. It's deep. Um, you know, uh, this, this growing on that landscape. Deep. So, uh, you know, it, it's disheartening to hear this, but like, yeah. You know, Amur honeysuckle and Japanese honeysuckle, they're here. And, and, and we, they are now part of the plant community of this continent. And so, you know, my property, I don't have buckthorn here. 
I don't have Tartarian Honeysuckle. I don't have common or glossy buckthorn, not because they weren't here, but because I don't let them grow here because I treasure what is here. Mm-hmm. I have neighbors that are overrun with those plants. And honestly, other than if we want anything more than a few nature preserves to have native plant communities, it will be through foraging, and I cannot envision any other way it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel that there's countries that are more progressive than we are? Like I just learned today from Tom's brother that when he was in Switzerland, they actually had mushroom check-in points with their – they would go through what you're forged and help you identify what you had and, and things like that, which to me is is way more progressive um, than what we have here. Do you know of countries that are way ahead of the curve and what they're doing at, with this, this process? I think that the United States, as far as developed countries, mm-hmm. is probably the least culturally hospitable to foraging. Wow. Um, it's way more socially acceptable in – Europe in general, uh, in Japan, um, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of uh, poorer countries in the world, it's, uh, it's an economic necessity, and there's no question of authorities interfering with foraging, but we're a very anti-foraging uh, country. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the Upper Mississippi National Wildlife Refuge allows, you know, all sorts of hunting and trapping and fishing. Um, they don't allow us to harvest most of the unbelievable diversity of massive quantities of plants that grow there extremely vigorously so i can legally i can pull out uh, a lotus or you know different plants to make uh, a duck blind but i can't legally eat those plants hmm. um, wow. so 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 our 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 entire concept of the relationship of humans to nature disfavors foraging in this country and I, and I and I'm hoping that we can see that change maybe in a, in a, within a generation. And we need a, we need a lot of, I think, foraging voices that also embrace conservation and just rationality mm-hmm. um, to 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 change to change that. Because I think you're very right. Europe, I think, is much more tolerant, and and uh, you know, and it varies by state in this country too. You Some know, states are are uh, you know, I would say there's like. There's like two or three big centers of anti-foraging feelings in this country. It's okay. New York City, it's Chicago, and it's L.A. Um, the, the anti-foraging ethic yeah. in those large urban areas is, is quite powerful. Wow. Wow. That's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because one of our listeners mentioned to us that in some states a fishing license is required just to harvest seaweed. And that posed like a whole nother line of questioning for us here before we even had this conversation with you like someone someone was asking us if you were to collect oysters technically is that no longer foraging is that hunting at that point uh and some of these more saline or i mean uh saltwater or brackish mm-hmm. communities well most people consider hunting and fishing as part of foraging okay mm-hmm. um and uh you know, the, the term kind of was popularized first by anthropologists who certainly, you know, use foraging as a term for hunting and gathering together, okay. use it as a kind of a replacement single word term to replace hunting and gathering. And then it kind of leaked from there into the general public in the, in the late 90s. Um, and so uh, and most people that consider themselves foragers uh, that hunt include hunting in their, quote, foraging, hunting and fishing. Okay. And I'm, I'm certainly one of them. So. You know, what we see with hunting regulations and fishing regulations is when the supply, when the demand exceeds the supply, then you're required to get a license or there's like mm. bag limit. Okay. So we may have like in northern Wisconsin, snowshoe hares, nobody wants to hunt them. There's no limit. There's year round as many as you want to shoot. 
something like rough grouse that people really like to hunt, then there's a limit, five birds a day. <laughs> All right. Gotcha. Um, and so with foraging uh, in Wisconsin, I'll just say, for example, there's two things you need a license to harvest. Ginseng, which is not for consumption generally, it's for sale, and then wild rice, because there's a lot of harvest pressure on the wild rice. Um, you know, hickory nuts, that's something that it would be almost unthinkable to need a license yeah. to pick black walnuts yeah. or hickory nuts, because there's so many, there's no need to regulate it. Um, I'm, I'm okay with the regulation of and the licensing requirements for things that are under a lot of pressure. Now, seashore foraging in some parts of the country is pretty intense and is regulated. I know in Oregon, you know, there's pretty detailed regulations for what and when you can harvest as far as, as um, you know, shellfish. Um, I don't know about seaweed regulations. Um, I haven't harvested much seaweed in my life. Mm-hmm. But um, I get seaweed as gifts. You know? <laughs> People who live on the coast are like, hey, Sam can't get seaweed. So let's send him seaweed. So I have like tons of it that's we'll been sent to me as gifts. We'll which have is to collect, really flattering. We'll have to collect oh, some salicornia but I have for very you. Little. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll collect some salicornia for you when we we go out and harvest uh, smooth cordgrass seed. I know that grows along in mm-hmm. with it. So yeah. um, I love salicornia. Every time I come to the, the coast, I'll, I'll eat some salicornia. Yeah. Oh, awesome. and that was I'm, we kind of mentioned. My brother is um, been my gateway into foraging, and he's been my kind of my guide and. Sometimes I question, like, do you really know what that is? <laughs> Not, but he's been right uh, 100% so far. Of the time he's one hundred percent right yeah. so far. <laughs> but um, but that was he was texting, or I said, hey, what questions do you have to him yesterday? And he sent me some stuff this morning, and that was eventually he just sent me a picture of salicornia, and. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know if Sam's the right guy because he lives in Wisconsin. I'm not sure how familiar he is with the coast, but that was one of the things. But, I don't know if my brother's even collected it yet, but now he's but now he's interested. If he yeah. wants to get it. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I, I, I'm glad you touched on, Sam, because we, we've had Ducks Unlimited on, and we've learned that when you buy your duck stamp, a lot of that goes into preservation. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of this, you know, it's kind of hard when you think of regulations, but a lot of this is to protect it and to also – help bolster it bolster it so you know and i i I completely agree and it's interesting that you also mentioned that there's plenty of black walnuts and we've lost it here in the northeast when you think of how much of our forests were chestnuts and the chestnut mass that that wildlife depended on you know we've Mm -hmm. managed there's still no shortage of these other (laughs) other nuts even without chestnuts yeah i mean um the landscape really produces a lot, a lot of food. And, um, you know, despite the idea that nature is really, really fragile, it's incredibly resilient. Um, and we, you know, so we have this idea of impact. Anything that a human does on the landscape is bad. But you could apply the same thing to a deer or a cottontail rabbit. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they, oh, every, every time they go out there, they eat something, that thing is dead. You know, yeah. but nature will fill that gap. So as long as people are paying attention um, and and not being wanton, um, you can harvest from nature and still have nature. And that and that's why I really profound. Um, but yeah, the nuts. Um, I I would love to be able to collect wild chestnuts, anything more than a few at a time. Yeah. Um, uh, the way we collect hickory nuts and acorns and walnuts now, um, and you know. My grandchildren will probably be able to do that somewhere. I mm-hmm. I hope so. They're they're doing a lot of strides in in hybridizing the American chestnut yeah. to get it back. So one of the, th- the- yeah, you know I'm I'm not generally a proponent of 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 GMO plants, 
but you know the the State University of New York at Syracuse, their forestry school, has uh, has a GMO chestnut that has one gene from wheat to make it 100% resistant to chestnut blight. And if you ask the chestnut, do you want this gene? or your species goes extinct, I think the chestnut says, give me that gene. Yeah. Um, we, and I was totally a skeptic. I went, I went on a tour of the facility, um, and uh, I was completely converted. I thought, this is, absolutely, this is absolutely incredible. Like, this tree is now, I mean, it's not a hybrid. It's got one little tiny gene from wheat in there. We, we, um, we've had the and, same conversation about American elm with, the, with Princeton mm-hmm, elm. Yeah. You know, I'd rather see that than no elm at all. Right, and at least with American elm, at least you know they can survive to maturity and, and 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 produce seed. So we know that if we have disturbance on the landscape, that the elms will fill those disturbances and eventually breed themselves naturally into resistance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But whereas the chestnut, um, this is not happening. No. Um, and and uh, so I was just. I was floored, you know, uh, at how I had never heard. I mean, you know, they told us about the wonders of genetic engineering back in the 80s, what it was going to do. And what did it do? It gave us Roundup Ready crops that <laughs> allowed us to spray just loads and loads of herbicide and poison everything. Like, nothing good came out of it. This is the first good thing I've actually heard that's actually come out of, you know, GMO. And it was done so, it was done really carefully and thoughtfully with, with that in mind. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I. <laughs> And that's something that we've lost that we no longer think about that is coming back. It, it's funny when I think of foraging and food. I don't always think of, you know, I, re- I initially said I think of fruit or like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just experienced for the first time this year in my wood pile amber jelly roll, and it never experienced. It. And I was like, oh, what's this? I got it all over myself, and I'm wiping it off. And then I, I was curious about it and researched and found. It. I'm like, oh, this is. This is edible. I had I had no idea, you know, just the the amount of things that are edible and known that I had no idea of. Mm-hmm. That if you just look a little deeper, look a little further. Um, are there other things like that 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 maybe we're not aware of? That you know, something like that amber jelly roll. That's like, hey, there's there's things that if you just think about or look a little deeper, that you'd be surprised. There is so many that you would be surprised. Okay. I mean, and, and I'm, I've been doing this for a long time, and a lot of people tell me, you know, say that I am an expert on edible wild plants, but every year I discover one in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just astounding to me. Um, like, some of these traditions, I, I'm, I'm convinced, I'm certain of the fact that there are some great foods in eastern North America, native here, for which the knowledge is completely dead. Mm-hmm. Nobody yeah. knows its food. Nobody knows how it, how it was used. It's gone. Um, because so many of them that we uncover are just hanging by this tiny little thread. Um, you know, and so everybody's got something in their yard that's a, a well-known edible or, or 30 things in their yard mm-hmm. that are well-known edibles. Um, but just a couple examples. You know, so we have this in, invasive um, <clears throat> uh, plant from from Asia, uh, Scorzonera liciniata, and, uh, you know, Scorzonera is a genus, uh, you know, related to dandelions and salsify um, that uh, has edible roots, edible greens. You can buy them in some seed catalogs, um, and yet it is a really, really common, it's a really common weed on the high plains, you know, okay. from, from, from Montana all the way down to Texas. <clears throat> 
And like nobody in the foraging community like knew that. Even like the people that were like they're like teaching foraging for a living didn't know this plant existed. I just happened to see it in my Great Plains flora, and it said common weed around. Uh, you know, Boulder, Colorado. And I was like, what? So I called a friend that lived there that <laughs> teaches about foraging. And she's like, I never heard of that. And I'm like, I described it. Said, said, go find it along this roadside. She went there 50 years later after it was written. She said to me, I found it. It's really good. You know? And, and so like, there is just this thing known as a food in Asia where it came from totally unknown here. Wow. Um, a- another example is, so, so there's this plant that looks quite a bit like water hemlock. You know, which is the deadliest plant in North America. Yeah. That's not something to screw around with, right? But um, uh, Oxypolis rigidi, or um, sometimes called stiff cowbane. Cowbane is another name for water hemlock. You know, all of our literature says it's deadly poisonous. Deadly poisonous. Well, some years ago, I encountered an old uh, Cherokee ethnography where one or two old women said, "We eat that." Um, this was in the 50s. You know, women, women that were old in the 1950s, remember it as a child, oh, we eat that. We call that swamp potato. Uh, you know, we eat the tubers of it. And I thought, wow. Well, I already knew this plant. And yeah. I, I, I was telling people it's deadly. I told myself it was deadly. But I was suspicious that it wasn't. So I found one other source to corroborate that extremely ob- obscure. And I went and I tried that. It's probably my favorite root vegetable, probably wow. the best yeah. root vegetable I've ever eaten, right? And this is literally, like, if any traditional knowledge is hanging by a thread, this is it. I mean, these were the people who refused to go on the Trail of Tears, hid in the, mount, in the southern Appalachians for a generation before they were, you know, or, or more until they were allowed to, like, stay there. Those few people preserved that bit of knowledge Otherwise, this, this plant culturally would be unknown. I would presume it was eaten over a very large area of its range in, in eastern North America, but there's no ethnography written for any tribe within the primary range of that plant, and except for the Cherokee. And so that knowledge is just, just about dead. Now it's something I've eaten intermittently for several years, and I think it's fabulous. It's, it's not deadly. I'm telling you, it's not. It's not. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has no, it has no uh, textural or scent or, or other similarities to water hemlock. It's just that people are like, oh, well, we're scared of it because it's in the carrot family, so we'll just call it deadly. And then this is what the, the cultural, or is what the colonial subjugation of knowledge looks like, right? Yeah. So there is big things, little things obscure things and not so obscure things there is mysteries waiting to be solved all around us and there's things that aren't mysteries that we just need to open our eyes to in everybody's yard everyone i mean i had a guy that was a uh, a police officer came to a workshop of mine he lived in chicago and i showed him wild parsnip and he said wow that's that plant it's amazing i never seen it before and it's the same parsnip as the grocery store i mean and we cooked some up he said those are wonderful he said I wish we had these grown in the Chicago area. And I said, oh, you definitely do. He said, oh, this is so distinct. It's so big. I've never seen this before. I said, you will see it now. He called me uh, the next day and said, when I got home, the fence in my backyard lined with parsnips. Wow. Wild parsnips, right? So so, so these mysteries are just they're all around us. Just, you know, and, uh, yeah. And I'm glad you're – never ceases to amaze me. I'm glad you're keeping some of these alive. Like if you think just throughout time, like information does get lost. No one really knows how the pyramids were built. That information just over time just 
gets gets lost. Mm-hmm. And you think of how many people had to – when it comes to food and deadly food, how many people had to die to figure out what you can eat, <laughs> right? Like blowfish that you have to cook it a certain way before – you know, mm-hmm. so that it's not deadly. And it's the same way with this and the fact that's, that it's being kept alive, that yeah. this knowledge you know, that's barely hanging on is still out there and being shared is huge. It's mm-hmm. it's huge. Yeah, and not not only that, but we have so much food just right, like you said, in our backyards that we're really almost letting go to waste. It's um it's a way to save a little money and enjoy something different that's just as nutritious or probably even more nutritious than what you would be getting at the grocery store anyway. And you think about how much food gets wasted a year. Yeah. Anyway, yep. you know, when you can just take what you need, harvest what you need mm-hmm. is is phenomenal. Yep. Um, one, one, I'm sorry, go ahead. I could hear you were starting to say well, something. I was going to say, it's, uh, it's definitely more nutritious than yeah. what you can get. And that's the thing is we are now suffering from what they call the diseases of civilization. You know, we're overfed and undernourished. Our food has about 40% the nutritional density that we're adapted for. And we are all constantly suffering from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and foraging is an answer to that. I mean, a way of putting nutritionally dense foods back into our diets. Um, and it's it's the most practical, most economical way to do that. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's not only an, uh, something fun and it's really fun, but it's also something really practical and really like incredible medical benefits to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I have two other questions that are yeah. just kind of in a, a different tangent. One is: Are there any places you? you advise people to avoid foraging because it might be close to farm fields or it's in a park where they, you know, they spray certain stuff. Are there any places like that that you, you try and tell people, Hey, don't look over there. Look, look someplace else. That's a great question. I'm super glad that you brought that up. Um, so, uh, you know, back in the seventies, they would have said that the biggest thing that foragers should worry about is, you know, lead from car exhaust today. It's herbicide. Um, most people don't realize how much herbicide is sprayed or how much is being used. Um, I've been actually documenting it all over the country. I mean, we are seeing the, this utter destruction of native plant communities with aerial herbicide on a scale that's unimaginable to most people. Um, and this, this is all over the place. It's not just in, like, golf courses and lawns anymore. I mean, there's aerial spraying of millions of acres a year in Texas to kill mesquite, for example. Um, and so you've got to try to figure out where stuff is and isn't being sprayed with herbicide. That's, that's, that's the big thing that I worry about. Um, you know, I was gathering cow parsnip on some public land in Pennsylvania with a group of people. And some uh, Pennsylvania uh, DNR employees came by, and they weren't sure the difference between cow parsnip, the native, and hogweed, the invasive. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they um, they told us that we just sprayed all, all that yesterday. Oh. And it hadn't showed up. You know, it hadn't become physically evident in the spring. And luckily, we hadn't eaten any yet. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect it at all because it was an area with no hogweed. It was a native plant. It was, you know, um <sighs> Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Really scary. And I forget what they sprayed, but it wasn't Roundup. It was something way worse. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so that's the thing to watch for. I mean, uh, that's really what foragers need to worry about. Okay. Did you have another And then one? I guess um, you, we addressed this a little bit earlier, but if someone is living in a development and they have 
like their little postage stamp. What are some things that you'd recommend them planting just in the yard so they have something they can go outside and, and collect yeah, we if ha- they can't make it out to a wild place to we, go get we, stuff? We have a lot of listeners that that were very interested in permaculture. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, if there's a mushroom or, or, or a plant or something that yeah. you really recommend, that was that was a huge question that we got. Gosh, I mean, it all depends on the soil and the size of your postage stamp and, and, and where you are. Um, but, I mean, one perennial plant, you know, that's kind of a permanent perennial uh, that's attractive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw something out here that maybe people are think is crazy, but one of the most beautiful plants is pokeweed. Mm-hmm. And I, I know houses that have a pokeweed plant that they tend like an apple tree in the yard. Mm-hmm. People that actually eat, eat poke greens okay. every spring mm-hmm. and pokeweed has to be boiled and drained to be eaten. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and, and maybe someone doesn't want that, but people come to my orchard and they see my pokeweed and they say, can I get one of those plants? Those are beautiful. <laughs> Now that's um, because we don't have pokeweed in the wild yeah. around here. That's one um, that, but that that has to be like you were mentioning. There's so many options. Yeah, that that has that could be poisonous if it's not prepared correct. Is it, am I right on that one? Yes. Okay. Yes. If you eat pokeweed raw, it's going to make you very ill. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I All feel right. bad. I have a giant one that's in my backyard that I've been cutting down every year. <laughs> now and now if I only knew. I had to look it up, but didn't I be- even think about it. I believe the Indians used yeah. the the berries for ink also if i remember correctly yeah in fact my my daughter writes letters in pokeweed ink really now she's yeah she uh she started doing that last summer uh somebody told her about it and uh so she uh she spilled it all over her bed a couple weeks ago Uh (laughs) (laughs) but that's that's a great plan i I just read an article recently about the history of eating pokeweed Hmm. like in i can't remember who wrote it or it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. That's a great one because for us in the Northeast, that's something we see fairly often. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, there's one factory that cans pokeweed commercially. There used to be a, another one in Arkansas. Um, there's a city in Tennessee that still has a pokeweed festival. Um, but you, you know, better make sure you cook it appropriately. Mm-hmm. You know, you should right. boil it for ten or twelve minutes and drain the water, um, or it's and, and collect the greens only when they're young. Okay. Um, so it's actually um, one of the best known wild leafy greens, but mm-hmm. also one of the ones, one of the few that there's like a, a worry if you were to screw up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And you were, you, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. You were going to yeah, say a couple other plants before we, uh, we got in your way. Oh, I mean, I mean, you know, there's just so many, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to say. I mean, uh, if, you know, but a lot of uh, the beauty of a native—I uh, mean, sorry—a perennial plant is, is that you you put one in and you have it for a very long time. But you also, if you want like weedy plants that are gonna um, like weedy native plants that are reseed themselves, I like American bellflower. It's gorgeous, you know, or a Campanulastrum americanum, uh, and the shoots are delicious. Um, and you know, you, one plant will produce thousands and thousands of seeds. So if you've got a little patch and you've got 30 plants you know you just let one or two go to seed um we have a bunch of you know we do that with black nightshade in our garden too which the ripe berries are excellent we always throw the seed the uh, seeds around the garden so that if they come up where we don't need to get rid of them we'll let them go so later in the season we get all the berries every you know september and october so i mean there's you can incorporate the wild annuals and perennials into landscaping so easy there's just so many of them 
How how many the the plants that you forage is that a common practice where you'll keep the seeds and reestablish them? Um. Yeah, I mean, like for example, say like ramps. Um, you know, I I've got a lot on my property, but I I bet you, uh, you know, I've I've tripled the amount of ramps on my properties since I've you know been here just by planting. Um, and uh, you know, if it if I can, and it's not inconvenient, I will. But the other half of tending is not just planting, but is removing competition, right? So yeah. I may see a bush that I really like, even something I don't eat, you know, like a, a alternate leaf dogwood. And I think, you know what? There's a couple white ash saplings around this alternate leaf dogwood, and I'm going to cut them out when I next time I'm doing firewood because I have 20,000 white ash saplings yeah. and I have one pagoda dogwood. Um, you know, and so that's the other way that somebody can, can regulate the plant community on their landscape uh, to increase diversity. Awesome, awesome. I, I do both. All right, very cool. I I think we're we're down. We we we've taken so much of your time, and I think we're down to our final question, which we did discuss before we went on the air. And, and it's we had to always, make some concessions such, again. <laughs> and that's that's okay. But you and we thought we'd make it two part, and I'm sure both are equally just as hard. If we always ask, what is your favorite native plant? And we were curious if you had a favorite food to forage. And I know it's it's difficult to pick just one. It's like picking a favorite child, which is impossible. Uh, but, you know, if, even if you could just give a couple, like what – if you have a couple favorite native plants, if you want to do different categories or favorite foods to forage, if, if you have any that come to mind. Well, I mean, you know, one that comes to mind is that bitter nut or yellow bud hickory because okay. – the idea that I've got in my pantry right now five gallons of the best cooking oil that I have ever tasted, and it came from this tree that grows all over my property that people think is worthless. And I can gather up 15 gallons of those nuts in an hour when I get a good crop. Wow. I mean, to me, that's just that's just awesome. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, you know, so... You know, I don't like to pick favorites, and in two years, somebody else will say a different tree is my favorite. <laughs> oh, it, but uh, in I've another been talking hour. about that one a lot for the last few years. I'm I'm curious to see how many of our listeners seek that out after this episode or or look into mm-hmm. that. I'd I'd be curious. Oh, I'm I'm on his Are website you? right now. <laughs> get some. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, r- right now, we're the only people commercially making the oil. The only people mm-hmm. that I know of making the oil in the United States, but I've been trying for 15 years to get other people to do it. And I got a, I got a person in Maryland who has an oil press and they made, they made some this year for themselves. And I got a, a guy in Vermont interested who is going to be doing it soon. Uh, and someone in North Carolina. So it's, I, I think awesome. in a decade, you're going to be able to buy hickory oil mm-hmm. from a lot of places or better yet like local co-ops right i got people who bring me nuts and i press the oil for them and i keep one third and i give them two thirds awesome and and you know so that's great there's no investment the forager just they gather up something and they get to get awesome cooking oil um that's wonderful so i think you can see it grow i love that i love that all right so we always end the show with a final thought and we each uh get a turn and what we kind of do is we, we we give you the floor you get to if if you want to, you can use it however you want. If you want to summarize or or promote something or just leave, uh, you know, follow up on something or mention something we didn't cover, you can you can use the time however you want. But the floor is yours. 
it's the best food in the world. Why not eat it? <laughs> very, yeah. very true. Yeah, very that's, true. And for me, that's basically what I was going to say is it's something that is accessible to almost everyone. Um, if you've been thinking about it, or even if you haven't been thinking about it, now's the time to go out and, and do this. And, uh, and there's a great resource. There's more than a, just one great resource out there, but one of them is Sam's book, uh, uh, The Forger's Harvest. And um, that's a great place to start with identifying and just knowing, giving you that, that first step. Um, go look in your backyard, try and figure out what stuff is and, and get his book so that he yeah. can try and figure <laughs> out what it is and, and take that step and eat it. Well, I, you know, I think for my final thought, I'm interested, you know, for, for someone that chose native plants as a living, I'm constantly reminded how much I don't know. Mm-hmm. And this is just another aspect of it. Now I'm very competitive and now I need to know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to learning more and sharing with everyone as I'm learning as well. So that's, that's part of the process. Are there, I, and I, I just thought of this, are, are there like foraging groups that are good or, or a good resource where people get together and share this information? You know, I know of one kind of small, low-key foraging club uh, in the United States. Wow. Um, wow. And um, they're looking to – people are looking to expand that. They have like – there's like a fledgling club. Uh, that was That's in Wisconsin. There's one in Indiana that's kind of forming now. And, and they're talking about maybe making a network of these groups. Um, there's more than 100 mushroom clubs mm-hmm. in the United States. Wow. Um, so if you, to learn the mushrooms, you, you do have a great resource of, of people getting together, getting together yeah. for that purpose. But for plants, I'm hoping that it forms. Um, and uh, there, there's, you know, there's a number of online groups, and I don't know much about them because I honestly don't participate. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, I honestly, other than our Facebook group for this podcast, which I love the group of people that we have and they're kind and polite and, and very helpful. And listen, I don't really participate in any other mm-hmm. native plant groups. I've, I've been every oh, time for, I, I, yeah, my, <laughs> my, every time I peek my nose in, I'm like, nah, I'm not interested. <laughs> so there's a few yearly events focused on foraging. Uh, that are great. There's one called the North Carolina Wild Food Weekend. Okay. And that's held usually in late April. It'd be about 100, 120 people or something like that at that event. Um, great event, great people, way to learn, way to way to feel like you're not abnormal because there's 100 people around you that are into the same thing. Um, and then um, my wife organizes one in southwestern okay. Wisconsin, kind of in the Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa corner there, All right. All right. Um, called the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival. Um, and she brings in instructors from all over the Midwest and a couple from further. Even me, she lets me come and teach. Oh, there. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and and so there, so so that's like a one weekend a year thing. But it is a blast, and it's a it's a great way to to learn. Last year's was canceled. I'm not even sure how, what you know how this year's is gonna go, but I I think it'll happen. I don't know. I'm I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping. Well, I. I I think hands down I learned more. Oh yeah, this episode yeah. than I have any of the previous. I'm episodes. excited for spring to kind of roll around so I can get out and start trying some of this stuff and it, it, me also really get rolling on it. Me also. So, so with that, we thank you guys for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Sam Thayer. Uh, for more information, make sure you visit his website, uh, which is www.foragersharvest.com. Um, when you're there, he has a lot of the stuff he's even been talking about for sale on his website in addition to all his great books. 
Um, he's got hickory oil on there. They have like different fruit leathers, all sorts of stuff up there. Uh, you also have a really good Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com backslash foragers harvest. Um, thank you guys for listening again to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pounders Nursery. And we will make sure that we share all those links on the website uh, when we post the, uh, the episode of the podcast. We need to give a big, uh, huge shout out to Ecocentric Plastic Men for contributing our new theme music uh, to meet their guest episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery. Also, YouTube, we need nine more followers, people, to get nine more <laughs> followers to hit our number that we've been reaching for. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215 215- three four six six one eight nine ask a question if we pick your question or comment we'll play it and answer it on a future episode of the buzz we actually have a surprise we got a few calls in for the next buzz and we're going to phone a friend yeah for an yep. answer so uh and let's not forget about our native plants healthy planet facebook group uh a ton of new members this week and it's the conversation's been wonderful yeah. so keep 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 it going yeah you can listen to native plants healthy planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com you can also check us out on apple Podcasts, podbean spotify stitcher really wherever you consume your podcast when you're there do us a favor leave a five-star review subscribe and definitely refer a friend because um, – and if you're going to refer a friend, this is a great episode to send definitely. them and say, hey, listen to this because there's a lot of great information coming out of there. Uh, last but not least, you can always listen to us on Alexa by saying, Alexa, play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Uh, Samuel, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. We we enjoyed every moment of this. Um, thank you again, everyone, uh, and we'll see you soon uh, coming up with uh, – with another buzz so until then keep it native thank you for listening to the native plants healthy planet podcast presented by pinelands nursery remember to like share follow and comment